Welcome, everybody. Remember, no Russian. This is SNGP. I'm your host, David Rad, veteran writer of Games Industry Biz, Industry Gamers, and Gamer Feed. With me, as always, is Tuesday. Yes, I am Tuesday. I'm the NPC that sends you on a fetch quest for something you can just buy from the store right next to them. Is that some commentary on you in everyday life? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if I can get out of doing something, I'm going to do that. <laughs> that reminds me of a person I knew in college who was renowned for making, let's say, not-so-smart decisions. I'm not going to say his name, but I remember once he went to Walmart just to get a pencil. That was a story that was passed around. And it's worth noting, like, you had to drive into town to get to Walmart, so... You made a trip just for a pencil. It was either a pen or a pencil. It basically doesn't matter. The small purchase. I I honestly think Pokemon has done some of the worst ones with that, where you just like have like a fetch quest that's like, hey, can you go buy me this thing? And then the reward is keep the thing. That's the worst if you yeah. keep on doing that. <laughs> like that's <laughs> buy this thing. Oh, by the way, you keep it. Like that's that's not a quest that's not a reward that's eh. that's doing the thing <laughs> i feel like we could have a topic about how pokemon can be just infuriating sometimes yeah but, yeah mm-hmm. um but <laughs> that is definitely a topic for another time but yes uh, let's start off with house cleaning i have some thoughts on what we talked about last week and things that would happen that aren't part of any other segment yes um, i will say that when it comes to boycotting games i've noticed a real trend that like after i boycott those companies they just tend to release things that i just don't care about like the direction that they go in is towards games that i just don't care about like lucas arts the first one they focused on star wars games and i think a lot of those star wars games that they released after 2004 or so were generally not all that great in my opinion like they were perfectly okay licensed games but they were nothing i would go out of my way to play i relate that because who knows for Ubisoft, like, I, I did say this about them heading towards service games, but if they are putting out six Tom Clancy service games every year, if that's their output, if that is the majority of their output, then maybe it doesn't even make a difference whether I boycott them or not, because it'll be an informal boycott of me just not giving any time to anything they put out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and EA is like that too. like they put out very little that I care about and Bioware was the main thing that I cared about and they haven't put out a good thing in several years. Like I, I feel very similarly about Konami save for the occasional like Yu-Gi-Oh game, but like that's, that's a different story because I'm a giant dork. But like the thing is, is that like most of their output right now is pro evolution soccer or occasionally like a Bomberman R expansion pack. And I I don't care about soccer. I was never a Bomberman fan. So to me, it's just a moot point, like, at this point. I agree. And maybe that's because, like, I'm telling myself not to pay attention. But also, whatever. Konami, you do you. Just fix your stuff, please. Please stop being terrible. Yeah, I mean, to that point, 
since 2015 when Metal Gear Solid 5 came out and I really love that game mm-hmm. but that came out Kojima was fired or let go or whatever happened and Silent Hills was canceled and since that time they just really haven't focused on AAA games or even like really their former core competency right. and it's like why should I care like there it's not even like they put out a Castlevania game and I have to make a decision like, okay, do I want to purchase new new Castlevania game? They haven't put out any new Castlevania games. No, all of their Castlevania output. The only thing, I think it was, I can't remember the exact name, but it was like a mobile game. Yes. Uh, that was essentially a sequel to that um, four-player uh, map-based Castlevania game yes. that they like canceled within a year. <laughs> yeah, so... Can't play that. I wouldn't care about that anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a symptom of where Konami is going. So yeah, I just wanted to note that, that with the direction that Ubisoft is headed, if you looked at E3, the only game that I was kind of a little bit interested in was Far Cry 6. And I feel like that is already treading on very well-trodden ground. Yeah. So we shall see. Maybe the final shoe will drop and it just won't even make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to note that my friend Sam and a few other streamers have been doing voiceovers for the plus content of Doki Doki Literature Club. And I have to say, the writing in those parts is just amazing. Isn't it? Like, goodness gracious, it's depressing. It's amazing. Dan Savato makes those girls into some of the most three-dimensional characters in gaming. Period. Yeah, seriously. And I loved all the context for them. I love the fact that you got to have each individual girl interacting with each other. Like, the different parts were themed around the different girls interacting with each other. And... That part was more classically just a visual novel in that there was no gameplay. You just mm-hmm. had text and you and you pressed a button and you proceeded. But still, as a compliment to the main game, it's excellent. It made me really empathize with Natsuki towards the end. Especially since like there's a part where she makes the hard decision to like cut out some people that are bad for her in her life. And that just really hit me because I've definitely had to do that. And it's tough. Even if you know it's the right decision for you, it's very tough. And it was reflected in that. And her and Yuri had a moment. And apparently the two streamers that played Yuri and Natsuki, they know each other in real life. And they had very good chemistry. And it was just incredibly well done. Yeah, yeah. That The plus content is a perfect compliment to an already very good game uh very very well written dan savato is a like friggin all-star in emotional writing uh particularly in writing about topics that are difficult to talk about handles them very well definitely definitely i can't wait to see what he does next obviously he's been kind of living in the world of doki doki literature club for the past five years but right i hope he gets to do something else He's one of those auteur creators that actually makes me think of Lucas Pope, uh, who created Papers, Please. Yes, and... yes. Yeah, I know. I know I had heard the name. Yeah. 
and Return of the Oberdin. And he is a one-man developer. He mm-hmm. does most of the work. He gets some help for some of the things that he can do, like obviously different voices, the music. Unlike Dan Savato and the developer of Undertale, Toby Fox, he is not a composer, so he can't do that. Right. Most game designers are not. But anyways, but it's meant that because he's worked on these individual games, he can just pour himself into these games for like four years since the last game was so successful. And mm-hmm. I wonder if Savannah was going to do that. I wonder what he's going to do. And I wonder if he's wondering what he's going to do next to. Though I, by every indication, it seems like Doki Doki Literature Club Plus has done pretty well. So I hope he, I can't wait to see what he does next. And Mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing what it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I hope that he has a long and fruitful career ahead of him. Definitely. But house cleaning aside, let's move on to what's lining up my system. And in my case, I am going to lead off with talking about Enter the Gungeon. Yay! Tuesday's most least favorite game. (laughs) My favorite hated game. (laughs) I can relate to that. On Saturday, I had a run where I early on got a black chest, and I got the Dark Marker. And that is a weapon that you can charge it up, and you fire a blue and a red blast that curve towards each other and hit. And yes. when they they hit, that's the equivalent of a blank. And a blank in the game does explosive damage, but it also critically destroys all bullets on screen. And also for a couple seconds more after the blast. So because of that, that makes it very powerful. And I looked online, and I was actually surprised to find among the veteran Gungeon community that it's not very popular. And I think part of it is just it's a charge weapon. And even after you charge it, it takes a little bit for both bullets to connect. So mm-hmm. its timing is very particular. And I get that. But I made hay of it with the bosses, especially against the the Mind Flayer boss. What <laughs> is it called? Is it just uh... the... It's mine flare, so like a uh, tactical mine flare. Mine flare, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that is the joke. That is the <laughs> yeah. gun, the weapon pun, since everything has to be a weapon pun. It's usually a gun pun, but you can't do that with mine, so it's mine flare. Yeah. Anyway. You could honestly rename the game Enter the Pungeon and nothing would change. <laughs> Except the title would be even worse. <laughs> Actually, Enter the Gungeon is a good name. Enter the Pungeon. I feel like that would have to be a pun-themed game. Yeah. Anyway, I got this weapon, and knocking out all the bullets on screen can be hugely beneficial against bosses, so that became my boss-killing weapon. And let me tell you, on the second and third bosses, I was so close to getting through them without getting hit, but I get nicked just at the end for both of them. (laughs) And I was, it was one of those, oh, I know this is going to come back and cost me. Because if you do that, you, of course, expand your hearts out by one. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's worth two hits. And that's critical. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get that, but I got all the way up to the High Dragoon. And part of what I found about the High Dragoon, I should say, 
is that he is really an endurance battle. He can take a lot of punishment. Yeah. So I just didn't have enough ammo to be able to take care of him, along with the fact that the timing of the Dark Marker was difficult to time up with it. Maybe I would have stood a chance if I had gotten those two extra hearts. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But that was very sad for me since I got that and that was a pretty good run, but I was like, oh man, when am I going to see a dark marker again? Mm. Who knows when? It came out of a black chest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which are are some of the rarest in the game. (laughs) The black chests are rare and there's no guarantee of getting anything. Mm -hmm. But I continued on and the next day I didn't get a black chest, but instead what I got was the bloody eye which decreases the speed of enemy bullets and also liquid valkyrie which is a reference to max pain mm-hmm. and both of those stack they slow yes. down bullet time and they stack and i also had robot legs which made my character faster so i was moving at light speed compared to the bullets and I was literally able to think about my moves for a half second, and that was working out pretty well. I also had, I think it was heavy bullets, which meant my bullets were slower, but larger and also did more damage. Yes. It was turning into a pretty good run, and at the end of it, as I said, on the final level, the game teased me by giving me a black chest. I could hardly believe it. At the forge, I was given a black chest. However, I had the caps to either afford a key for this black chest or to get a full heart, which I knew because I had antibodies was going to be an extra half a heart. So three Mm -hmm. hits. And Mm -hmm. I didn't look it up or ask you or ask anything at the time because I knew the response was going to be take the black chest. Yes. But for me, and I told you about this, and I said I was only going to reveal it on the podcast. What I did was I took the heart. Okay. Because I knew I could potentially use the extra three hits. I was well set up to fight the High Dragoon. That would put me at full health. And whereas the Black Chest maybe would be a great weapon, but maybe it would just be an activated item. That even if it was pretty good, that is of very limited use during the boss fights, usually. Or maybe it wouldn't be a super great weapon. Or maybe the item you mentioned, the passive item, the Platinum Bullet, I think it was, that upgrades when you kill everything. That sounds like a great thing to get on floor one. Yeah, but yeah. but if I had gotten it there, that would have been so depressing because everything <laughs> else on the floor was dead. So <laughs> I I literally would not be able to benefit from it. This is literally a useless item now. Yes, I only have one enemy remaining. I wouldn't know if like the giant knives that the high dragon throws under the wall, if killing those would enhance it. I'm not sure. It mm-hmm. probably would not have been worth it regardless. Anyway, so yeah. I took the safe option. And I'm sure the Gungeon community would disapprove. But you know what? I made it through, and I beat the High Dragon. And I had about four hits remaining. I think I might have been able to survive without getting the extra hearts. 
but I didn't want to take the risk. I knew mm -hmm. the extra health was going to be useful. I didn't know if what was going to be in the black chest was going to be all that useful. So I took the easy option. I took the safe yeah. option, I should say. Mm -hmm. But I got through. I got to the end. I shot myself with the gun that can kill the past, which, of course, when you don't have the bullet, just sends you spiraling through time, but you don't actually get to do the ending sequence. Mm -hmm. I was very pleased with myself that I actually managed to do that. I got the trophy for beating it in beast mode, which yes. <laughs> apparently all you have to do is go through the menu and turn on beast mode, which I did. And as far as I can tell, that affects nothing other than getting that trophy. Oh, it absolutely does nothing. It was actually an in-joke by the developers for like all of these like super turbo like ultra modes and stuff. And they were just like, we just want that in there just for the joke. So they did. And it unlocks a gun. And that's it. <laughs> that is totally fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It does do something in that it unlocks a gun if you beat it in beast mode. And also gets a trophy, which is nice. Yes. And after that, I contemplated, okay, what do I want to do after this? I decided to go after the fairly easy trophy for pushing a table into a pit, which is a kind of funny trophy in that I believe the trophy is called, I knew somebody would do this, and then the description of it is why, and it shows like a table being all sad and falling. But <laughs> during that run, it was an okay run. I had definitely gotten better at Gungeon, but I got a bunch of mediocre weapons, no good passive upgrades, and then I encountered the Cannonball Rog, and it just killed me because I didn't really have any good means to fight against it, and then I died. I was like, you know what, this happens too often in Enter the Gungeon, that yeah, I think I'm probably going to be done with it with this. Uh, to the game's credit, there was plenty of things you can do, secondary things, particular endings for all of the characters when you go into the past. Once you get the bullet that can kill the past, that is a quest in and of itself. I appreciate how much that is, but I also appreciate that I can do what I did and the credits rolled and I can say like, okay, I feel like I have given an appropriate amount of time to this game. And I will say about Enter the Gungeon, there were definitely some neat parts to it, and I appreciate all the references it makes and all the gun puns, although the descriptions of the items are generally so unhelpful yeah. that every time I encountered something new, I would generally always run to Google and say, okay, rubber bullets, Gungeon, or yeah. the Tommy Gun Gungeon, or whatever item and Gungeon, because the descriptions are basically just flavor. They yeah, don't yeah. really tell you what it's supposed to do, or what it does, rather. Mm -hmm. And I read that some people are definitely frustrated with that within the Gungeon community, that there's basically no reason to look at that if you're looking for helpful information. Yeah. You go to the, the wiki for it, and you get a very helpful description of what it does exactly. Yeah, that's actually a that's actually also a problem with the binding of Isaac is that a lot of the items and, and it improved with a rebirth and afterbirth, but um originally in the base game a lot of items just would say, 
oh, this makes me sad, or, like, memories, dot, dot, dot. And it's like, what does this mean? <laughs> wow. So, yeah, the wiki is definitely a place to go for both Gungeon and Isaac. I also went to the Reddit. There's a good Reddit for the Gungeon community. Yes. And they even had a daily discussion on all of the various items, which gave some very helpful feedback on what people thought of the various items and weapons in the game, which gave me a good impression about what's good, what players think is good, and how to use it appropriately, which, again, is good, especially if you pick up a weapon, you think it looks cool, but you're heading into the boss, and it's like, should I use this on the boss or not? Since Mm -hmm. oftentimes during a boss, I don't want to be fiddling around with equipping a different weapon or discovering that it's actually a terrible weapon to use on a boss or things of that nature. So for me, I used the Marine almost exclusively after trying out the various characters. I tried the Hunter out a couple of times, but I went with the Marine. Yes. And part of that is because his pistol, the Marine sidearm, that is definitely the best infinite ammo starting gun in the game mm-hmm. it has decent damage a decent clip decent fire rate in addition to that because he has marine training he has better accuracy and that's just a bonus that i appreciate throughout the game with everything it affects mm-hmm. and also he just gets another hit and he starts with armor yes and nobody else does so all those things together, uh, I use the Marine pretty much exclusively. He's my guy. He's who I got through the game with. I tried them all out. I think I did not like the pilot very much, especially since Ooh, his pilot. Especially since his starting pistol is complete garbage. Mm. And apparently some people really like the pilot, but he is also acknowledged to have the highest amount of variance. Yes. You can have two active items. It depends on how much you like active items. I mean, if you're playing the pilot, then you must like that. And I realize there's some items that can only go in the active item slot. And the pilot can be good at holding one of those while still having a useful active item in the other slot. I know he's good for certain runs where you're trying to amass resources, since he also has a passive ability that makes shopkeepers charge him less. Yes. Anyways, regardless, I made it to the end with the Marine. I looked up what to do to unlock the various characters. To For some of the trophies, you need to do like the Golem's arm, which is missing. And I mean, really, it's an impressive amount of secondary and tertiary goals that you can be tackling every time you go down into the Gungeon. And mm-hmm. that's a that's a good thing to do for, again, a game that is kind of fundamentally short. Most people obviously aren't going to beat it in one go-through or even in their first several tries. But still, it gives those nice secondary goals that accumulate over time. But again, I think I'm probably done with the game. The difference between a good Gungeon run and a bad Gungeon run is a little too dependent upon how good the items you get are. Yeah. I don't like that level of variance. 
Yeah, yeah. One of um, our mutual friends uh, and I have talked a lot about Enter the Gungeon. Um, uh, they also play Binding of Isaac as well. Um, and something that we have both agreed on is that um, Binding of Isaac, even if you get bad items, you can still be a skilled player and um, make it to the end of the game. Um, so items don't really make the game in Isaac as much as they do in um, Enter the Gungeon. In that if you get a bad item in Gungeon, it's gonna be rough. <laughs> it's an uphill battle for sure. Um, and and uh, like you said with the pilot, he has the um, he's he's the most variant character because there's a lot of risk to him. Um, his starting weapon is the worst of all of the characters, even the unlockable characters. Um, his passives are not really something you can benefit from on the first floor. Um, which the first floor is also very detrimental in in Enter the Gungeon. Um, so it's it's very it can be very difficult to play the game and get into it. I, I award you for sticking to it and beating the dragon. That took me a lot longer than it took you, but I was also very stubborn headed and did not like um, read uh, a lot of Reddit content and stuff like that. I just said, nope, I'm gonna stick my head to the wall and play this game until I hate it. <laughs> I am very dedicated towards looking up help if I feel like I need it. I don't take it for granted since I definitely grew up in an era when that wasn't as readily available. And now there's plenty of resources everywhere. Video mm -hmm. guides, suggestions. It's great. But yes, I looked up advice and... I managed to get to the end. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I liked to do in the game. I can also get frustrated at the fact that oftentimes enemies will fire at you from outside of your range of view, particularly vertically. Yeah. Since your view is wider horizontally than it is vertically because of the way screens are. And because of that, I would enter rooms via the left or right as opposed to up or down whenever I could, because I knew that would just be to my advantage. Another thing that would frustrate me is just sometimes a room would just be designed seemingly to screw you. Like yeah. I would come in and immediately there would be a shotgun bullet can that's right there and you're in a confined hallway and there's no place to dodge and enemies are deadly to the touch. Well, they take off a life, but it's just moments like that that are annoying. Like, consistently, I was getting annoyed at things that were happening in Gungeon when things were not going my way. Because yeah. I didn't feel like I could do anything about it. Anyways, that is my somewhat mixed opinion of Gungeon, but I gave it the good try, and I got to an ending. The other things require an absurd amount of effort to get, and I don't think I'm going to be putting that in. but. Regardless, I had a fine enough time. I'm glad I played it just to get the impression. But yes, mm. I think my time in the Gungeon is probably done. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't recommend Exit the Gungeon. Um, it's, not, it's not a bad game. It's just definitely very different. And uh, yeah, Enter the Gungeon is much better. But yeah, if, if uh, you're done with that, I can share what I have been playing. Go right ahead. What's lighting up your system? Alright, so um, other than um, a game that we will be talking about a little bit later, I have really only played Diablo 3 this week, 
and it's the weirdest feeling because I hate the people who made it. I, I hate all the stuff that's going on there, but the game is really fun. <laughs> I wish it was not as fun as it was. It would make it a lot simpler um, for me to just put down the game and say, no, I don't want to play this. But yes, I have been playing through a lot more of Diablo 3. As I mentioned last week, I mained uh, the Necromancer the last time I played, and I started that again. I wasn't trying to play around with my build too much, just kind of sticking to the corpse lances, and this time around I found that I'm having a much harder time finding a primary attack to stick with. The Necromancer has a couple okay ones, but nothing that I really fall in love with. I remember using a lot back when I first played it, the um, ground spikes, the bone spikes. And there was one rune that you could stick on that that would just make it one spike that would attack the enemies. And I, I remember using that as well as the scythes. This time around, I've mostly been using the blood siphon as the necromancer. I've also been having my little skeleton friends and a flesh golem follow me around. What I really like about the skeleton friends and flesh golem is that like they can very quickly um, chain up kills for you, which I, I played some of the other classes as well. Necromancer definitely has a very quick chain to uh, get to kills with hit, uh, with their support um, allies, and that and that's one very nice thing as well. As uh, with the golem, their active ability is that whenever you press the spell button for the golem, the golem will take a big leap and just jump into a crowd of enemies and drop a whole bunch of corpses. And as someone who my build um, is mostly focused on using um, the corpse lance, which causes a whole bunch of bone spikes to pop out of the corpses and just attack enemies, that is really beneficial for me. So I have been playing around with that. I've been having a lot of fun with that Corpse Lance ability. Another rune that you can add on to that, such that the bones from the Corpse Lance <laughs> will ricochet into other enemies. So that can very quickly go from, oh, I have hit one enemy, to, oh, I am killing six enemies in a row without even doing anything. And that's probably my favorite, favorite build in that game. It's just tons of fun to just accidentally murder i really like that so i've been playing through that i got to probably close to the end of act two with the necromancer before i said this is an experience i've already had i kind of want to try and toy around with other characters so what i at first i tried playing around with the demon hunter that is a much more ranged character focuses on crossbows and um longbows which is kind of interesting I kind of like her, I kind of don't. I feel like a lot of the attacks and a lot of the spells that you unlock are very similar. I'm sure there's a lot of differentiation, but between... I know that this was one of the things that I found, is that there were active skills for her that was, oh, you throw a knife. Oh, now you throw a giant um, shuriken. Oh, now you shoot a lot of arrows. And it's like, and this is all kind of the same. I have a friend who really likes Demon Hunter, so I eventually plan to go back and play that again with the Demon Hunter and kind of uh, expand out the skills. One thing that I do really love about Diablo 3 is that um, no matter what character you play, um, the buttons, you can reassign whatever spell is being used, because I found that I do not like passive abilities in that game at all. I like to do a lot of damage, and I like to do it very quickly. So I feel like if I were to pick up the Demon Hunter again, I would 
definitely be messing around with all of the uh, spells uh, so that I don't have a build that I hate. But the most exploring that I have been doing with the game this week has been um, with the mage character. I think, I believe they're called the, the wizard in that game. It's just a standard spellcaster. But that was a character that I only played very briefly as well, but I am finding this time around that I am liking a lot more. I like playing around with the primary spells. She has a magic missile, the ability to cast like blade hits in front of her, in front of them, a stream of electricity, or just like sending shockwaves of electricity towards enemies. And so it's kind of fun to play around with those. She, they have a lot of different runes that you can stick on there and change the way that the primary spells work, which is cool. I, again, I do not like the passive abilities for their, for um, the characters, so I have been replacing those with other spells. I know that the build that I'm kind of sitting in right now summons a Hydra. I also have the ability to just explode in front of enemies, which is great to run into a patch of enemies and just cause a big detonation and knock out like five, six, ten of them at a time. I like the fire laser, combust, I believe it is called. And then um, I had trouble sticking with one final spell to stick on me. I At first, I really liked the Frost uh, Beam, but I mean, Combust and Frost Beam are kind of the same thing until I unlocked a rune that lets you just throw out a blizzard that like expands around you into a large circle of effect. So what I now like to do is run into a group of monsters, detonate myself, expand out the blizzard cloud and then just clear out the rest with my combustion beam and if i run out of that i just use my primary spell so that has been tons of fun i i have been really enjoying the mage spellcaster character other than that i have been doing a little bit of experimenting not a whole lot so i can't comment too much on both um the monk and the crusader my experience with the monk is I want to give that build a lot more of a chance. Early game is pretty slow. Uh, the monk doesn't do a whole lot of damage right off the bat. The special attack that they have, their special, their first non-standard spell doesn't do a whole lot of attack. It doesn't do a whole lot of damage, excuse me. And it takes quite a while to recharge. It's a very different character than I'm used to playing. So that I want to give more time to, but I have to like dedicate a lot of effort and probably even look into how to correctly build that character. And then as far as the Crusader goes, I only played them a little bit tonight and I've, I found a lot of the same things with the monk, but um, I, I know that they both have this blind ability that like lets you do a little bit more damage, but it's not something that I'm super jazzed about. I think the Crusader I'll probably stick with more as I go. I, I feel like it has the ability to do a lot of big damage really quick. And I like big numbers, so that has been what I was, what I've been playing. Hopefully, next week I am not playing Diablo and hating myself for it. <laughs> yeah, dealing with the primeval of guilt. Yeah, yeah, feeling really bad. <laughs> yeah, the fun thing about the monk and the crusader is eventually they get some great mobility options into combat, mm -hmm. but of course you need to get to that point in the game, but. You are constantly getting abilities, which is, yes. again, I think one of the best parts about playing Diablo 3 and a new character is that you're just getting these new abilities all the time. Yeah, I, I really do love that about Diablo, is that like you can, 
you can set your build up and then you can unlock like three new ways to use a skill and then it completely changes everything and that's like so nice it's it's just it's tons of fun experimenting around with that i love doing that with the characters that i have so far and it really is best the more that you play it because that way you unlock more crazy stuff to do with your characters definitely definitely now for the game that I've been playing the most, and not surprisingly, it is Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Been putting far more time into that. And just like most From games, it is heavily defined by its boss encounters. Probably my favorite boss encounter so far has been an illusionist shinobi called Lady Butterfly. And she will jump around this battlefield which is a underground temple where there's a fire raging in the background but she will jump between a bunch of invisible wires and sometimes attack you sometimes throw shuriken at you and she will attack at short range with shuriken and also with kicks and it's a real skill test to basically be able to deflect those attacks in time and also when she jumps up, you can nail her with a shuriken yourself, and that stuns her and does some damage. And that's another one of those things about this game, is knowing what to do against the bosses is a large part of the battle more than half of the time. And she has a couple stages, like that initial stage you're just dealing with her, and then she reveals that you've been fighting her illusion, and... You fight for a little bit in her second form, and then she will summon a bunch of illusions that will attack you. And they just look like peasants using weapons, but they're not too much of a problem by themselves. But she summons in, I think, about eight of them. And the best tactic is generally to run away from them until she dismisses them. She snaps her fingers, and it's good that she dismisses them. However, in doing so, they turn into this magical aura that float into the air and then dive towards you in an attack. So whatever illusions remain will generally turn into an attack on you, and you can use wooden pillars to deflect that or just dodge out of the way. But that was a satisfying boss fight. It took a few times, but that really showed how much progress I had been making in the game. I pretty much had to deal with her on honest terms because there isn't much you can do against her to cheese her, really. The same was not true for this boss called Ashina Seven Spears. He is a samurai warrior who has a pike that is about 10 feet long, and the blade itself is about two and a half feet. And fighting him, he is just so aggressive that. Dodging out of the way of what he does is difficult, and I never got particularly good at him. So instead of doing that, I got good at exploiting his pathfinding by using a nearby stone staircase, luring him up there, and then dropping to the ground and using his pathfinding to just attack him up there. On top of that, I would also throw oil at him and use what's called a flame vent to light him on fire and get a couple of shots in while he's on fire. Because this game is nothing if 
not using every single exploit you can to try and take down your enemies. Your enemies that might be honorable samurai, they might be shinobis themselves. It doesn't matter. What matters is the mission and defeating your enemies. How you do it does not matter. And I don't feel like there's any moment that better exemplified that than an encounter in a Sheena castle itself. There's a dojo area where there's a samurai sitting down. He's in silken samurai garb. He has a sword by his side. And he's just kneeling on this pillow. And there's two screens next to him. And you certainly can just run in and fight him straight. But that didn't seem advisable. So I used what's called the Gachin Sugar, which that's a buff that increases your stealth. And I used that, and I dropped into low profile, and I snuck up behind him, and I backstabbed him. And then during the fight, I brought out a prosthetic called the Sabrimaru, which is basically a poison dagger. And mm. so when the opportunity presented itself, I would just slash a lot with the Sabrimaru, and he would block it, but it would poison him. And one successful poisoning was about a third of his health. So I essentially snuck up behind him and backstabbed him and then used poison to kill him in a fight as opposed to fighting him fairly. And it's worth noting, he is somebody who does a draw cut ability, like a samurai draw cut. And Mm. that is basically all he does, but he is very quick at it. And it is so powerful that it is nearly enough to kill you in one hit. So you have to use every weapon at your disposal. In my mind. I mean, you can fight him straight. It mainly involves a lot of dodging to the left because he draws from his right. So that means there's a bit of a gap when he draws in his left. But you have to get that dodging perfectly. And that is really Sekiro. I love the aesthetics of it too, like the dojo. Because there is a front entrance to the dojo. However, there's also an open window next door. So you can truly be like a shinobi and sneak in through the window to try and backstab him. And the aesthetics of Asina Castle are amazing from continuing its stellar level design. Still really unprecedented. And to that respect, another boss I encountered just simply called the Armored Warrior. You come onto a bridge and... Walking into view about halfway through is what appears to be a armored warrior from the West, covered head to foot, and he has a giant claymore of sorts, and he is invulnerable to your attacks, to taking damage. He can only take posture damage. And what you have to do with him on this bridge is you have to knock his posture all the way down and then perform a backstab, which just knock him back a little bit. And you have to do that right next to the edge, and that causes him to fall off. That is mm. the way you defeat that boss. That is incredibly interesting. I That sounds like it should not be real. <laughs> it is extremely interesting. I love the creativity of that. Another interesting encounter I had, I've entered an area with a lot of, I guess, corrupted monks. 
and there was a scroll that was speaking to me that conveyed how the monks in the valley have turned away from Buddha. And I feel like that was the game's way of saying, hey, you're fighting all these Buddhist monks, but it's okay. They're bad Buddhist monks. It's okay to murder them. There's a few other subtle examples that maybe they've just been killing random people that have been wandering near their temple. But that was an explicit thing that, hey, don't feel bad about killing the monks. Don't hesitate to do it. And that is another interesting area. The Buddhist monks, of course, mostly fighting hand to hand. But I came into this one temple and three monks were kneeling in front of what appeared to be a mummified monk. And I tried locking onto that mummified monk after I dispatched all the other monks. And I was like, is this thing an enemy? Is it going to come alive and attack me? And I was like, okay, I think I'm okay. Since there was an item right in front of it. And I walked up and I picked up the item and the mummified monk came alive and it barfed at me. And I was like, ah, it's was just such a sudden thing. Just a subtle indication. And you can't target it until it starts moving. There's mm. no indication that it's not just part of the background or the environment. That, yeah, that feels very from soft. <laughs> yeah, that and it didn't do really much damage, but it was very surprising. Mm-hmm. And another suggestion that the Wall Scroll told me that they've strayed from Buddha because they've pursued this path towards immortality that is immoral and that might be a hint of that right there that this mummified monk who i couldn't properly kill you can backstab it and knock it down for a bit but it comes back alive it suggests that something is not right with these monks Mm. and again that's just another good example of how good the environmental design and just the atmosphere is in these games so I, I guess you could say that the monks were immorat immort uh, I'm trying to make it Mortality. There you go, you got it in the end. <laughs> Crushed it. First try. Yeah, way to go. <laughs> but the boss that I've been trying to fight today really he in some games i feel like he would be the end boss since he is the person who captured the young master genchiro and he is a samurai who also has a large recurve bow and have you ever had a boss encounter where you can feel like you're getting better but then all of a sudden you feel like you're also getting worse sometimes oh yes absolutely <laughs> this boss definitely feels like that since I'll learn certain things he does, but he has an attack where he will leap back and shoot off like four or five arrows in quick succession. And if you're too aggressive in certain scenarios, he will just nail those on you. And that can be a good deal of your health. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of finding out when should you attack, when should you leave yourself open. And I've been learning that fight. And... In classic from fashion, he has two death blow meters on screen when he appears. You can't sneak up to him. You have to fight him straight. So you have to get him all the way down. But once you do that, he reveals that he has a final form, which has extra abilities. Mm -hmm. 
I have not gotten past this final form yet. It seems to have less health, but he is fairly challenging. But it is the right mixture of feeling like a challenge while not being overly frustrating. I only have to get him once. I feel like I'm making that progress. I feel like I can get it, but it's going to take a lot of practice and really learning the boss fight well. But that is the ongoing thing. And I really realized in looking up advice about the game how long the game is. It is not a short game, even though it is not an action RPG like the Soul series or Bloodborne. This game is still 30 hours or more. There is a lot of content. Mm -hmm. I'm maybe only a third of the way in. I haven't been dedicating myself purely to this because of Gungeon, but I'm expecting I'll be more directly focusing on this going forward. Yeah. But I can't wait to see more. It's been a lot of fun. It's had all the excellence that From Games have had, along with a lot of mechanical depth. And ironically, I've actually grinded more for experience in this game than I ever had in any of the Souls games. Because sometimes you can get a skill that helps a lot. Like, it helps your posture or deal more damage to enemy posture or use an ability in the air. Things like that. I had to do some grinding for that today. Mm -hmm. But that is the progress I have made in Sekiro. Did you want to say anything about that? Did you have a question? No, I I just, the more you talk about Sekiro, the more I'm mildly curious about it. We've had discussions like this. We both know I really, really like um, Feudal Japan, but it is a Souls game, and it is Activision right now. (laughs) So uh, it kind of sits in that void of, I can appreciate this from a distance and not hate myself. (laughs) Yeah, it's not developed by Activision, so... I don't feel bad about it. it is a from game through and through, but I do kind of have a bad taste in my mouth whenever the Activision logo pops up whenever I load yeah. the game. But yeah. I didn't pay money for it. I can put that aside. Yeah. And I will report back next week as I hopefully, fingers crossed, make more progress. I think I should be able to get past Genichiro. It makes me want to play it, or like some feudal Japan era game. So, so next week we'll probably both be talking about Samurais <laughs> or Shinobi. Well, play Ghost of Tsushima. Yes, I was actually thinking about that when when you were mentioning some of the stuff. I was like, I should play that game again. <laughs> That's a option that doesn't come with the guilt of having the Activision logo pop up every day, and it also doesn't come with white knuckle pain. <laughs> That's true. It is not as difficult as a game, at least by default. Yeah. Like, there's multiple difficulty levels. It's yeah. worth noting in Sekiro, I looked it up. There's actually a bell you can ring, which gives you a curse, which makes <laughs> everything harder. So you can make the game harder. You can't make it easier. When you ring the bell, you can't undo that. Like It's just hard, hard. I don't know. I think there is a way to get rid of the curse. I don't know if it's easy or not. Okay, right, right. But it is portrayed as a curse. It's worth noting that they had the kindness to at least have a note near the bell saying, 
basically if you ring this bell you will be cursed by a demon which is <laughs> an explicit way of saying maybe don't do this hey don't touch the button we know you want to touch it though yeah regardless i did not ring the bell and i'm glad i did not ring the bell the game is hard enough as it is yeah yeah all that aside moving over to SNGP news and Activision again. Activision <laughs> Blizzard. Yeah, yeah. Activision Blizzard, everything is terrible always. Increasingly <laughs> terrible inside and out. Yeah. So Tuesday, why don't you detail us on the things that have gone down with Activision Blizzard this week? Yes, yes. I have a few um, stories on that. I will share. I think first, the best place to start is a shareholder response to Robert Kotick. For those who don't know, Bobby Kotick is the current CEO of Activision Blizzard. And a lot of the correspondence with the public that has been going on in response to the lawsuit from the state of California about the unfair treatment of women and the sexual harassment allegations, um, a lot of that has been coming from him. So uh, we've just been hearing a lot of stuff from him and today we are finally uh actually i don't know if it was today it was very recently that a uh one of the sponsors or not sponsors i'm sorry shareholders the soc investment group sent a letter to activision activision blizzard and bobby kotick saying that the statements the response and statements do not nearly go far enough to address the issues involved so they are not pleased this s SOC investment group are not pleased with the way that this situation has been handling has been handled. This details on the letter were um, published by the Video Game Chronicle. Direct quotes include: "While we appreciate the improved tone and increased detail in CEO Kodak's recent letter to Activision Blizzard employees, customers, and shareholders, the changes Mr. Kodak has announced do not nearly go far enough to address the deep and widespread issues with equity." inclusion and human capital management at the company no changes have been announced or proposed that would in any way alter the current process for filling vacancies either to the board of directors or to senior management so overall they're kind of saying we've seen what you've done and it doesn't really sound like what we want to do or at least it's it's not enough which is very similar to uh, what we were seeing last week with the Activision suit, which I'm kind of happy that this is being brought up now because A, yes, a lot of things have not been done yet, and B, a lot of what we have been hearing is just talk so far. Uh, but this this poses an actual chance of things happening. Also, the letter criticizes Kodak's choice of the Wilmer Hale choice. Uh, for those who do not know, Wilmer Hale is the law firm that Bobby Kotick has called in to evaluate current standards at Blizzard, including the sexual harassment allegations and the way that these things are reported. The letter writes, This firm has a sterling reputation as a defender of the wealthy and connected, but it has no track record of uncovering wrongdoing. The lead investigator does not have in-depth experience investigating workplace harassment and abuse, and the scope of the investigation fails to address the full range of equity issues Mr. Kotick acknowledges. So ultimately, uh, SOC uh, Investment Group is also not happy with the uh, Wilmer Hale choice. Employees of Blizzard were not enthused either, mostly because the other huge client of Wilmer Hale is Amazon, which is not a nice company to the employees there, allegedly. 
Well, they are very anti union. Yes, yes. That Yeah, and the treatment of Amazon workers as compared to other workers could be debated, but the fact that Amazon is very anti union cannot be debated. Yes, absolutely. And from the moment that this uh law firm choice was announced, that was definitely one of the thing that one of the things that everyone picked up on is that they are very anti-union, and it seems that that was an intentional choice. The letter lays out a few goals that they would like to see in order to keep a strong, in order to have smooth operations and a strong reputation going forward. These changes that they would like to see include increasing board diversity and equity by adding a woman director. Uh, the letter states, preferably one with a history of advocacy for marginalized people and communities. They want this by the end of the year. They want Activision Blizzard to commit to a gender balance on the board by 2025. So giving them some room for that to either train or hire from outside more female candidates, make the board a little bit more balanced. Reserving at least one board seat for a nominee selected by current employees as their representative. One thing that they mentioned is clawing back bonuses from executives who were found to have engaged in or enable abusive behavior. So they, this is a big thing. SOC wants that money to be taken away to punish these people that have done the bad things. Another noticeable thing, they want no executive bonuses for the 2021 fiscal year. They want future executive bonus awards to be contingent on the company as a whole, achieving clearly articulated and independently verified milestones for diversity and equity, as well as undertaking a company-wide equity review that, quote, that will encompass the full range of concerns, including inequities rooted in gender, gender identity, sexuality, and race, articulated by Mr. Kodak, Activision Blizzard employees and customers, equity and representation issues in game design, the development process, and in user forums and similar settings. So this is a huge, huge letter. This has actual weight to it. If none of these things are done, and then a shareholder is going to withdraw. That is bad. That's bad for the company. They don't want that to happen. This, to me, this is actually good news. I'm, I'm actually very happy that this happened um i again all of this is a terrible situation but for what has been happening is a whole lot of lip service and this is finally do something this is finally someone saying hey we hear you but go do it so this is just great it's it's a step towards the right direction what will happen we don't know just yet but i i'm hopeful that this is the first of many changes that could you know or moves that could bring about changes further. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a step. Did you have a comment on that? Yeah, it is certainly something. I wonder how much of the advice Activision will take. We still don't know what the full response is going to be on the executive front from Activision. Of course. But it was also surprising to see from this investment group, basically to lay out these fairly progressive demands of what they wanted but clearly they are not happy with the direction of activision blizzard and this actually sounds like something that could have some sort of effect because as you said this large investment group that can potentially have an effect on things because they withdraw all their shares they sell them then 
that affects the other shares that are remaining for the company. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Again, we don't know what will happen. Um, I just looked, this article was published August 11th. So there hasn't really been a whole lot of time to respond, but it is something could happen. (laughs) Something could actually happen. And that's very potentially promising. I won't get my hopes up too high. Another big piece of news is that three higher up members of the Blizzard staff have either resigned or been let go. Diablo 4 game director Louis Bariga, lead designer Jesse McCree, and World of Warcraft designer Jonathan LeCraft were let go from Blizzard on Wednesday. This information is coming from Kotaku. The original situation was that these names were no longer listed on the Blizzard website. However, Blizzard did finally comment, We can confirm Louis Bariga, Jesse McCree, and Jonathan LeCraft are no longer with the company. Furthermore, they state, We have a deep, talented roster of developers already in place, and new leaders have been assigned where appropriate. We are confident in our ability to continue progress, deliver amazing experiences to our players, and move forward to ensure a safe, productive work environment for all. I really shook my head when I read that. I was like, well, we're trying to act like, yeah, it's just business as usual over here. Yeah, yeah. To me, that statement is very empty, because if you look into these three people, they have some history. The biggest thing that I have found in my research is that all three of these individuals were pictured in the by now infamous Cosby Suite photo. For those who do not know, the Cosby Suite was the loving pet name of the suite that Alex Afrasiabi, I apologize for the mispronouncement, took at BlizzCon 2020. 13. I apologize. 2013. It was named after, obviously, Bill Cosby for his sexual misconduct. It was mostly said to be an informal gathering place for Blizzard employees to meet higher up members of the staff, but there is also a leaked group chat called BlizzCon Cosby Crew. The screenshot that I saw includes comments, I am gathering the hot chicks for the cause. Uh, That came from Alex A. Brigham says another employee, you can't marry all of them, Alex. I can. I'm Middle Eastern. Then Jesse McCree, one of the individuals who was let go today, responds, you can't, or you misspelled, and then uses an expletive. Um, so all three of these individuals have been seen in this photo. So it is likely that all three of them have been engaging in many of the allegations that Blizzard has been hit with recently. So, yeah. Like you said, this statement is very... Oh, nothing is happening here. Nothing is happening here when obviously evidence would point to something is happening. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And I will say this hits Blizzard doubly. Firstly, however bad these developers were as people, they might have been talented game developers. Right. So if they leave, that's bad for game development. And possibly there are going to be more people departing. And. In creative arts like this, you can't just slot people in. No, no, absolutely not. And, like, the thing that I noted immediately, Diablo 4 game director. I I don't know a whole lot about that, but that's a high-up position. You can't just, you know, take, you know, the next person down in line. That's the director of the project. It's uh, going to be very interesting to see. I know that some people are concerned about the future of 
Blizzard games. And honestly, I don't think they're wrong to be if this kind of seems like it's just going to be the first of potentially many of these kind of let goes. Definitely. It's concerning if you care about the history of Blizzard, but Blizzard surrendered its autonomy when it merged with Activision. And it was actually technically a merger. It was a weird corporate thing. They were part of Vivendi Universal. Mm -hmm. And there were also some reports that came out that suggested that leadership in Blizzard had been aware of these sorts of things for a while. And it painted a kind of damning picture of the executive team. Yeah. And many of them had left like Mike Morheim in the past few years, but they were aware of these issues and they knew that it was a problem. And apparently Morheim, Frank Pierce and J. Allen Brack, who were all high up and J. Allen Brack is one who left last week. They all married women of less senior roles in the company. And that's apparently set a, a precedent kind of for basically men to hit on women in the workplace. And apparently a lot of women said it led to kind of an uncomfortable atmosphere. I mean, because it is one of those things that the executives can say no, since, hey, like, obviously hitting on women in the workplace works for them. So it would be complete hypocrisy if you told your subordinates to not do that. Yeah, yeah. In my consumption of media this week, I was looking at some historic, poorly aged context clips, and there was a clip with J. Allen Brack on a panel where a female staff member asked about the design choice of female characters, and she phrased it in such a way that was, she said, "Why are some of the why do some of the female characters look like they stepped out of a Victoria's Secret catalog to which the Blizzard staff member, who I could not find a source on, said, yeah, absolutely. What magazine would you like them to step out of? Sort of dismissing the question. And J. Allen Brack was at the end. And while when he resigned, he denied having any knowledge of any of this. He was there. He was laughing along with the team, you know, kind of shoving that under the table. So, yeah, I. it seems like they have to know. They, they have to have known. <laughs> Certainly, there had to have been some level of awareness. Yeah. Even if they wanted to deny it. And it's worth noting about Overwatch, I feel like that game has definitely benefited from the fact that a lot of the female characters are what I would describe as they look like sexy Pixar characters. Yeah, yeah, I can agree. They have that look kind of of a Pixar character, although I realize a lot of 3D characters are just increasingly looking like Pixar characters, so maybe that comparisons in his moot but regardless but they look like that but they put a lot of attention into their breasts and their rear ends and they're very finely rendered and to that point the characters are purposely made to be very sexy right right at least the females are yeah yeah furthermore the last big development that i have on this situation for this week Sponsors are pulling out from Overwatch leagues. I have reports here from GameIndustry.biz. Coca-Cola, Kellogg, and State Farm all told paper that they are reevaluating their Overwatch League partnerships. So this is again hitting Activision Blizzard where it hurts in the wallet. So far, uh, we have seen um, updated banners without these logos on them. I have seen reports that T-Mobile 
is also dropping sponsorship. I've seen some reports that say Mountain Dew, Game Fuel this year will not feature Activision Blizzard partnerships. So it sounds like, and, and these are not all high and mighty virtuous companies either, but it is worth noting that if these companies are dropping you, that's not good either. <laughs> Definitely. And to your point, this is hitting them where it hurts most, which is in the wallet. And these sorts of departures suggest like how there are certain lines of things that most companies just don't want to be associated with. And this sort of rampant sexual harassment, that's not something anybody wants their brand associated with. Right, right, right. Yeah. And it's so interesting, too, because like, a lot of these companies that I, I, I honestly didn't even know that they had like some form of sponsorship with that. It makes sense, like with some of them, like Pringles, Cheez-Its, Coca-Cola, you know, you can easily slap that on a container. But Kellogg's, State Farm, that's, wow. <laughs> it's just, it's really, it's bad. It's getting bad. I mean, it's been bad, but it's getting worse. <laughs> And to my point I made a few weeks ago about how World of Warcraft is losing players, I read another article by the BBC talking about it. And that's another thing that really points to how bad it's getting, is that this has gotten big enough to attract the attention from mainstream media outlets, not just gaming outlets. And the Washington Post and the BBC have done articles related to this situation but it seems like players are still actively fleeing world of warcraft that's a bad sign for that game yeah it's a bad sign for any game honestly in development at any of blizzards and sundry studios or probably at activision as a whole right now it's hard to say mm -hmm. i know they're planning on potentially revealing a call of duty soon We'll see what that is. We'll probably talk about that. It's worth noting, I just want to relate for the record that I don't want there to be a ton of scuttlebutt in our news sections, and that's why I've been avoiding that. Yes. There's always rumors that are pinging about. I try to only address it when I feel like it's an interesting topic for us to talk about and when it's also extremely likely to be true. Right, right. And and I agree with that, yeah. And relevant if it is true. The possibility of a GTA 6, the reports of that were interesting, and whatever another GTA is going to be, that will have an impact on the industry. And we also haven't had one in eight years. But back to the subject of Activision Blizzard, it does really make me wonder if there isn't going to be an exodus of employees to go along with the exodus of players from WoW, potentially, what the state of WoW will even be like in a year, mm -hmm. whether Overwatch 2, Diablo 4, what even the state of those games are. And this is something that is looking to have an actual material effect on things. Right. Having the shareholders pounding down the door of Activision, issuing that public letter, sponsors withdrawing these all point to potential changes we will have to see but this is already having a real material effect 
And these sorts of controversies don't always have this much of a material effect. No, absolutely not. This was actually something that I was thinking about a little bit earlier today is that things are moving a lot faster with this than they normally do. So there, there actually is a potential that there could be change in the future. But right now it's kind of a we have to wait and see. But it is interesting to see all of this happening so quickly. Definitely, definitely. And I would put money on the fact that we're probably going to be talking about Activision Blizzard stuff next week as well. It'll be a month. (laughs) Full month. To move on, in hard gaming news, the ID at Xbox showcase happened this past week, and there were a lot of indie games shown off. It was primarily a showcase for things that were coming to Game Pass. The games that are coming to Game Pass include Aragami 2, Evil Genius 2 World Domination, Library of Ruina, Paparazzi, Stardew Valley, that's obviously not a new game, and The Artful Escape. They went to great pains to highlight how these games are coming when they launch on the Xbox platform, at least for some of them. And they are still obviously heavily pushing the Game Pass option. Mm-hmm. New games announced were Lightyear Frontier and The Wandering Village. The Wandering Village looked the neatest to me. It looked like a town management sim, but you're on the back of a giant earthen dinosaur by the looks of it that's large enough to be able to support a fairly sizable village. Oh, that sounds really fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, it looks neat. Also shown off was Ollie Ollie World. That's not new, but that is going to be that developer's attempt to expand out after the purely 2D Ollie Ollie and Ollie Ollie 2. Mm-hmm. I know some people who, who like that game. I'm actually looking, also shown I'm off, looking forward to Ollie Ollie World. I'll, I'll want to see what that is, but yeah. Yeah. Sam and Max Save the World Remastered also got shown off. I'm glad that got remastered. That is. I mean, at this point, that is a first-generation Telltale game, and it is available on Xbox 360. It is not easy to access, but I'm glad that is coming to everything. It's like a lot of games that get remastered and released on everything. I am glad that is getting remastered so more people can experience it. And hopefully the rest of those Sam and Max games could get launched in a form that's people can play it more easily on hopefully all modern platforms. But yeah, it was mainly a show off for Game Pass in my opinion, but there's clearly some stuff coming to the Xbox and the indie space. The whole program was two hours. Mm -hmm. I didn't watch all of it. I only watched two hour long videos detailing things when it's E3 time, but Clearly some stuff. They are putting a lot of focus on it. I feel like indies are back in focus for Microsoft, I think, because it's easier to get exclusives for that, at least temporary exclusives in particular. And that's also a differentiator for Game Pass to bring those games on launch day to Game Pass as an option. Because, again, that is what they are pushing hard, and that is the primary incentive, I think, to pick up an Xbox series right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm expecting to see that. So for you, yes, that was I... not the only indie program this week. Sorry to cut you off, but yeah. No, no. Yes, I also had a indie report that went through. 
Nintendo announced a Indie World, which um, those are kind of like their Nintendo Directs, just with a whole bunch of indie games. But what's really interesting about the Nintendo Indie World stuff is that they pick from developers from all over the world, really. And this one had actually quite a few really interesting indie titles. Uh, we talked about this a little bit. Some of these indie worlds are hit and miss because, you know, with indie games, it's an incredibly specific thing. But watching the show, a lot of this stuff was actually really interesting to me. For fans of Jet Set Radio, the first game that they showed off was called Bomb Rush Cyber Funk. And it's honestly just Jet Set Radio. Yeah, I looked at the very brief trailer that they showed off of the game, and it could not be more clear that they are just trying to do a Jet Set Radio in everything but name. Honestly, yeah, it's like even when you're talking to the characters, they're like jamming about. They got that letterboxing that's the same style as the original game. It's just Jet Set Radio, and I own that game on PS Vita, but this game looks very interesting as well. So I'm actually looking forward to that. The next game that was there was Toem, a photography adventure game. Black and white, hand-drawn game, laid back. It looks really nice. I don't know if you saw any footage from that, but it looks very relaxing. It's developed by a Scandinavian company. It's inspired by, I believe it was these two guys, their experience in the Scandinavian countryside. So that is coming this fall. Bomb Rush Cyberfunk is coming early next year. It is a timed Nintendo Switch exclusive, so it will eventually be on every platform, but for a while it's just going to be on the Switch. The next game that they showed off was Loop Hero. I have not actually played that game. I know that a lot of people really like it. It is a roguelike. I don't know if I'm going to like that game, <laughs> but it is coming this holiday for Nintendo Switch. No huge surprise there. You use cards to craft a dungeon, sort of for your hero to explore you and its roguelite in that you get more materials to upgrade the town that you live in and stuff like that. So that's coming in the winter. Far Changing Tides, a sequel to the previous Far game, was also announced timed exclusive as well. It is a side-scroller set in a post-apocalyptic water world. You're looking for a new place to live. It is described as a seafaring puzzle platformer. It is notable in that you don't need to have played the first game in order to enjoy that game, so it looks kind of interesting. It's not usually what I go for. Puzzle platformers don't usually strike my fancy. It actually kind of reminds me of the game The Cave. I don't know if you played that. That was back in 2013. I know of The Cave. I have not played The Cave. Yeah, it looks a little bit like that. Another one that they talked about was Necro Barista Final Pour. That was released yesterday. There were actually quite a few shadow drops from the show, which they do occasionally, but this one definitely had the most. That is a visual novel about a, I believe it's a coffee shop, where the dead get one last chance to uh, mingle with the world of the living. This is a sort of remaster. It is an expanded director's cut, they have said. It's another timed console exclusive. Then they showed off Garden Story, another timed console exclusive. It looks a little bit like a food-based Legend of Zelda. He plays a blueberry in that game. That's pretty unique. That was released the day of the show as well. Boyfriend Dungeon, a dungeon crawler where you make love with your weapons. Very strange concept. Another game that was released... Axiom Verge 2, Metroidvania, it is said to feature two interconnected worlds. That also released. The last few big announcements from that show were Shovel Knight Pocket Dungeon, which is a puzzle dungeon exploration game. 
is coming to the Nintendo Switch. It has an exclusive Amiibo feature. Metal Slug Tactics is coming next year. And Tetris Effect is also coming October 8th. Otherwise, there were just a few quick highlights. Astroneer is coming in January. Slime Rancher was launched. Curious Expedition was launched. And the final big thing that they had was Eastward, a game from Chucklefish, a dungeon exploration game set in a modern world where you control two players at a time. So it was actually a pretty big show. Like, these Nintendo Indie Worlds usually are either hit or miss, but this one was very, very good. It had a lot of cool stuff, especially Metal Slug Tactics. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting about Loop Hero. You called it a roguelike, and it has those elements, but it also has deck-building elements, and it also has elements yes. of a idle game, because the hero walks around the loop that you assemble, mm-hmm. but you don't actually control their actions directly. They fight enemies that they encounter, but you change out their equipment but they auto attack so it's an interesting combination of things and perhaps not surprisingly a byproduct of a game jam that was just trying out a bunch of ideas and the boyfriend dungeon game that you mentioned also sounds like something that started out as a game jam thing i believe it was and then it expanded yeah just mashing up a couple of random ideas and going yeah hey this actually makes for a neat game and what was that game that led off again the game that let off was bomb rush cyber funk yeah bomb rush cyberpunk i looked at that and in the 30 seconds i was like this really could not be trying to be more like just a radio if it tried the only right? thing that is different is you have skateboards and you don't have inline skates yes but it appears as though there is going to be graffitiing or at least they had graffiti in there Maybe yep. it has more focus on actual doing tricks. That's the thing about Jack Ryan Radio that I feel like threw a lot of people off when they picked it up since that genre was already pretty well established via Tony Hawk when the game came out, is the fact that it's not really a trick game. Right, yeah, no, it's mostly a run away from the police because you're a bad boy graffitiing the walls. Yeah, that is the goals of the mission is to graffiti the different areas where the game tells you to and in some missions you're trying to graffiti over what a enemy gang has done everything from the animations from like that early 2000s cel-shaded look is Mm -hmm. just so that game even the music which like jet set radio has one of the greatest soundtracks of all time and it makes me appreciate some people really really love that game and i think a decent part of that is the game's aesthetics. It nails yes. its own aesthetics. Like, it looks great. It still looks pretty good because it's so heavily stylized. And the soundtrack is amazing. But, like, honestly, as far as a game, it's an okay game. I don't think yes. it's an amazing game. But when you look at it and you hear it, it's like, wow, this game world is just so well-realized. And that was honestly like on the bleeding edge of cell shaded games. Yeah. Yeah, I will say my experience with Jet Set Radio is I watched one of my favorite YouTube people play it. And that was a game that was like, oh, I want to play this. I want to play this. This looks so cool. And then I got my hands on it on the Vita and I'm like, this does not play well. It's, it's a much more fun game to experience from a third person point of view than it is a first person point of view in my eyes so i am hopeful that bomb rush cyberpunk avoids that because it's just jet set radio by any other name (laughs) yeah 
and it does look like it's doing more than Jet Set Radio is doing. Yes, That's good. Like, yeah, I would like to see them expand on that formula, but but we shall say that looks exciting. I'm also very excited that just Loop Hero is coming out on consoles because that says to me that like, oh, maybe that'll come to everything eventually. Since looking at that game, I'm like, I want to get my hands on that, but I yeah only play games on my laptop reluctantly. Yeah. But it's coming to Switch. That's great. It's going to reach a whole new audience. And that's one of those games that that's a Devolver joint that probably yep. would have gotten lost in the shuffle of just the deluge of indie games that releases now. But Devolver mm-hmm. picked it up and the attention that Devolver gives things, whoever scouts out their games and takes their pitches does a really, really good job. Yeah, they're yeah, all, for sure. They're not all the best games, but they take games that generally have unique ideas and a cool look and deserve mm-hmm. to get more attention than they probably otherwise would have. So, Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how Hotline Miami got out on consoles is Devolver. Yeah. So We've talked about this, and I just want to see this now, like, I feel like talking about Devolver and that sort of high-profile indie game is potentially a topic for the future, since they definitely changed the orientation of indie games. And when you think about Hotline Miami, what an indie game can be, what its tone can be, what its atmosphere can be, was hugely changed after that. Yes, yes, absolutely. I would love to talk about Devolver someday. Anyways, putting that aside, now for the final news story, Sony completed the acquisition of anime streaming service Crunchyroll. Final price, $1.175 billion. Wow. They have 5 million paying subscribers and 120 million registered users. Sony also owns Funimation, They are looking to combine those services, and according to Eurogamer, there are plans to offer some sort of premium PlayStation Plus offering. I hope that is some sort of, if you're subscribed to one, you can get one for for less. Mm -hmm. Somewhat makes sense. And it's worth noting that I have considered subscribing to Crunchyroll in the past. It was one of those things I said to myself, once me and my wife started getting a little bit more revenue, maybe I'd look into paying for more anime and it hasn't happened yet in part because i've just been doing other things but i mean i have been watching jojo's bizarre adventure golden wind on crunchyroll right now which is thankfully for free like there's a decent amount of free options that they have on there yes yes there is and i will applaud any site that offers anime for free that allows fans to avoid the exceedingly sketchy secondhand sites that are carrying anime on them. And I'm not going to name names, but we all know what those are. Yeah. (laughs) It's also an interesting option that to me, there is definitely crossover between like the PlayStation and Crunchyroll audience. And it's interesting to see how this will work. And it's a reminder of how much a multimedia brand Sony is, even though like mm-hmm. PlayStation is definitely a crown jewel. Nintendo would never make this move. You can't even stream Netflix to a Switch, right? No, you cannot. You can do Hulu, but not Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Nintendo has reveled in like how much the Switch is 
very gaming focused to the exclusion of other things, honestly. Like, I remember when the Wii U came out, I remember there was a commenter on it was industry gamers asking about, like, so can I play DVDs? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm sorry, it can't. It doesn't have support for that. And it's just because Nintendo wasn't willing to pay. I believe there was a licensing cost in making it so that the DVD drive in the game a system could play DVDs, movie DVDs, and they didn't pay it. Like, they didn't see it as a priority. Right. Although the Wii U did have some weird pass-through things to, if you wanted to watch like regular television on the, the gamepad, which, gosh. That's the strangest thing ever. It is showing how somewhat backwards-facing the Wii U was. Yeah. Along with yeah. the fact that, honestly, I did not like looking at the screen to do much of anything on the Wii U. The gamepad screen was not beautiful like the Switch's screen. Yeah, yeah. I, I do quite like my Switch. It's part of the reason why the Switch works and the gamepad did not work, although there's a litany of reasons and we could go into the Wii U in the future and I would probably like to, but that is a another topic for another time. Yes. But yeah, that's an interesting move. I feel like that's something that I read that. I did read that before you had brought this up. It was just one of those things that like made me say, huh, okay. So I'm curious to see how they will integrate this into their um, lineup. Yeah. How it will complement the PlayStation brand, that's a good question. And we're seeing this more now. There are more acquisitions going on, not just in the general gaming sphere, but the general media sense. Like, large companies are looking to secure themselves and discovery is they're going to be part of the same company with Warner that's going to be integrated into HBO max. Mm -hmm. And the embracer group is seemingly sucking up every small and mid tier developer that's asking. I actually found out we didn't cover this, but Summa digital was bought by Tencent. That's a, AAA developer that it's in the United Kingdom. They recently developed Sackboy's Adventure for the PlayStation 5, and they've done a number of other contract work, but now they're owned by Tencent. Unknown if Sony was taking pitches for them, but it's just kind of the way of things now. There's so much heavy competition that... And of course, Microsoft. I mean, we did a whole feature talking about how Microsoft has hoovered up a lot of small, mid-sized, right. large studios, and including like an entire publisher in ZeniMax Media, Bethesda. I feel like this has not ended, and we're going to see more of this just because content is king, and it is a differentiator, and all the parties involved know it. So, But for content, for my money... As far as sheer scope of story, you can't really beat Dragon Age Origins. There is... No, certainly cannot. There is so much breadth to that game, and we're finally getting to talk about this. I've wanted to talk about this for a very long time. I've thought about it since earlier this year, full disclosure. I played through all the Origins because I just wanted to 
see what they all are. I had only seen one, and I did all of the content in Dragon Age Origins I had not played as part of a potential playthrough of Dragon Age Inquisition in the future. But I had thoughts on those origins, and I pitched to Tuesday potentially playing through those origins and uh, sharing our opinions. And that was completed this past week. Yes, yes, I have gone through, I will say, five origins and 74% of one of them. And I'll talk about that in a bit when we get to that one. You really did get through all of the heavy-duty story stuff in that one, since you mentioned it yeah. to me. And I, if you just watched a video, and I'm sure you did, about like what yes. remained, you saw... Even though like there was some combat left, there was no real important decisions to be made. You just right, right. fight through an area to get to the end and then start the game proper. But anyway, yeah. I figured you could lead off with whatever order you played them in. Since I definitely went through and I polished up my notes, reminded myself of everything that happened since it was earlier this year and I wanted to make mm-hmm. sure I was fresh, but Yes, yes, I am absolutely willing to start. So I started the game with the Magi Origin, which was actually something that I was very excited to do because that was the one that you had talked about most. So that one is you start as a mage who exists in a tower protected by the Templars because they fear that their magic needs to be controlled in order to prevent ruin upon the whole kingdom that they exist in. The game starts with you going through the ritual called the Harrowing, which is essentially you discovering your magic and essentially ascending your rank. Yeah. So that is... I'm sorry if I could cut in. Like, Yes, absolutely. You're sent to the Fade. You have magic before that, but this is basically a test to make sure that you can resist demons, since that is the reason why mages are feared, because they can be tempted by demons from what's called the Fade. Mm-hmm. If a demon enters a human or elf vessel, then they can become a powerful creature known as an abomination and wreak great damage, and they want to avoid that. So the Templars protect the mages, but they're also there to kill all the mages if something goes wrong. Yeah, it is a, a uncomfortable relationship. But yes, you start out, you are doing the harrowing. Your character is not told about what is involved in the harrowing, so it's a secret scenario. But you are thrust into the fade, and it's worth noting the fade is this kind of ethereal environment, dreamlike environment, which has objects that resemble our world, but things are oddly placed because of the way the fade works. That was probably, like, it was a very weird environment to be in, but I, I do like a trippy place to start the game, so I, I did enjoy that. The big thing that you do throughout the Fade is try to find whatever demon is hanging out in there and prove to the Templars that you can resist that, and you meet a couple people throughout that adventure who have not been so successful. You meet Mouse, who is a former mage who takes the form of a mouse. And so you are exploring and working on fighting smaller demons until you find the bigger one to essentially prove to the Templars that you are okay. So you do that, but then it's revealed that Mouse might have been the real demon. So that was an interesting little storyline. 
but then the rest of the origin is kind of dealing with uh, inner workings of the tower, including your friend Jawain, who I did not like Jawain. <laughs> it's worth noting about Mouse. It is implied that he is a pride demon that was hiding himself in order mm. to get in your good graces. And I did yes. like that part of the origin, that it wasn't just you fighting this spirit of rage and overcoming him. It was about manipulation, because that's the real threat from demons. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, once you're plopped back into the real world, and now you're a full mage having survived the harrowing, it's clear that the Tower of Magi is just kind mm -hmm. of a gilded cage. You can study your magic, you can talk with other people, no. but you can't leave. And um, I, I, the first thing that Jawain says to you is like, what is it like? So like, it's very clear that like, the Templars have been keeping a lot of information from the mages. And not only that, but like also higher up members of the um, mage community. So I did everything that I could to leave Jawain in the dark. <laughs> I was so mean to Jawain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did not like Jawain as well. I don't know if you were meant to dislike him. I feel like you were supposed to, because every other supporting character in most of the Origins were reasonable. <laughs> Jawain was not. Yeah. He, firstly, is having this affair with this initiate of the... There's a belief system around believing in a god called the Maker and his one disciple, Andraste, and she's an initiate in that. Which is basically, it's like a nun, but they haven't taken vows. But anyways, so he's having this affair, which is already forbidden. Mm. And then he's like, hey, I think they're going to make me tranquil because they think I'm using blood magic. And that's essentially a magical lobotomy. Yes. It removes your magic and basically makes it so you can't feel anything anymore. You encounter a tranquil or two in the tower, and they are exactly as you might think, speaking completely neutrally and without any emotion. Yes, yes. One of the main quest givers in this origin is a tranquil, and it's at first, like, I was kind of like, this person does nothing. How are they functioning? And then I realized, oh. So then that gives a very um, pressing threat to the quest, depending on your feelings on Jawain. <laughs> yeah. And he wants you to get his phylactery. And it's worth noting, this origin is the longest origin easily, in part because, firstly, you have a long setup and going to the fade and coming back mm -hmm. but also you have to wander through the tower and you can talk to a lot of people and there's a lot of interesting backstory stuff on like the different fraternities of mages and mage politics and there's a lot of lore in there and i certainly appreciated that when i played it but rowan he wants you to get his phylactery which is a vial of blood which is something they have for all the mages that basically allows them to track you down if you escape right so the big quest is getting that and that's the big like i said the big event for this quest so what you need to do first is to get into that area and there are a couple ways to do it which i actually enjoyed that they i assume that this is very common of bioware games to have multiple solutions to the problem. What you needed to do is essentially get a fire rod in order to bypass a couple locks. So you need a permit for that, which can only be signed off on by one of the senior mages. You can do that in a couple of ways, and I found out 
that if you snitch on Jawain, <laughs> you can get it easily. And I didn't even want to do it for the easy. I just wanted to snitch on Jawain. <laughs> yeah, I told Irving that he was doing this, and Irving was just like, no, go along with it. Yes, yeah. Because I was completely done with Roin from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. Anyway, so I got the rod, and I got his permission to do this. And you absolutely don't have to do this. You don't have to inform Irving at all, but we obviously both chose to do that. Yes. There are a couple of ways to get it, but I know that that is one of the more common ways. The other more common way is to help another higher-ranking mage clear out a den of spiders, because she is afraid of spiders. And that gives another bit of length to this origin, which I have read that this is the longest origin in that you can potentially have three dungeons if you choose to do that one. We both did not do that, but that would add some extra length to that. But then your main quest from there is exploring the... Isn't it like... It's a basement kind of area. Isn't it in the basement? Yes. Yes. It's in the basement of the tower, and of course it involves dealing with various magical artifacts and i believe there's some animated statues and armor that attacks you while you're down there yes some sentries that are designed to ward off anybody since you're not supposed to be there yes so you don't fight any actual humans in this section so you're going through the basement trying to find the phylactery and there's a little bit of puzzle solving as well i like that setup for the mage that like they that you have to think a little bit. Some of the other origins don't have you do that. So I would, I do compliment that. Once you finally find Jawain's phylactery, he destroys it, and then as they're leaving, everyone is caught. <laughs> and that's kind of where things get a little difficult, is that what I did was I leaned into reporting Jawain and betraying him as hard as possible. <laughs> I, when the... Templar came, he was like, what are you all doing? And I'm like, they were trying to get married, so I was working with Irving to stop them, and Irving had my back, but things just kept getting worse. And from what I saw, it appears as though Jawain actually was using blood magic, and he escapes the tower, and I assume sets himself up as an antagonist later on in the game. I believe he does come up. I believe there is some actual interaction there. Okay. And that's worth noting since, like, that varies between origin, how much you interact with what you do in the origin in the future. But Yes. Despite the fact that I worked with Irvin, the head of the Templars was obviously pretty perturbed at this whole situation. And Rowan was like, after he used the blood magic, like, you know, I did this all for you, Lily, for us. And she's like, oh, no, I can't believe you did this. And then Rowan's like, you know, everybody betray me. I fed up with this world. And he leaves. But mm -hmm. despite the fact that I kind of did nothing wrong and did my part, at the same time, like, Duncan steps forward and is like, you know, hey, you could join the Grey Wardens. I was just like, sure, I want to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> that was my take for my character was just... The life of living in this gilded cage of the tower as compared to the life of adventure of a Grey Warden. That sure sounds better to me. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely be like, I'm out. And it is worth noting that, like, the Templars do not want you leaving. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. But because Duncan is a Grey Warden, he can just conscript you and they can't say anything about it. Exactly. 
it might have been different if you hadn't just undergone the harrowing, but you had and proven that you can be a responsible mage in the world at large. So, mm-hmm. but that's the mage origin for my ranking. I put it in the A rank and I gave it third overall. I generally really like the origin. There isn't as much interaction later with what you can do. I do like that it is the only origin where you can choose race. Yes. You can be either an elf or a human. And that has a pretty big effect on how some people react to you. Mm-hmm. Should I say it has a big effect if you were an elf, because then you get to see the latent racism that's populating Ferelden. If you're a human, most people just don't have any reaction to you because you're mostly dealing with humans. But. Yes. So what tier system are you using? Are you using like a S-A-B-C kind of thing? Yes, I have S-A-B-C. And this is A rank through it overall. I did like it. It doesn't have quite as much interaction overall as I would like with the story going forward, but... It is still one of the better origins, and it's really close between number two and number three, I will say, Mm -hmm. with this. Very solid origin. There's definitely a lot going on. You get a good sense about like what it's like to be a mage. I did like how there's acute interaction you can have with one Templar when you talk to him. If you're a female, which I did play as a female mage, which said like, you know, hey, you can flirt with him basically saying like, I see how you look at me. Like, you know, why don't we go, you know, and he's like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I need to leave. Does that would. I did not see that. I don't want to do that now. I want to torture some Templars. <laughs> yeah, there's obviously no relations between mages and Templars for obvious reasons. Right. So, David, I'm going to give you a hot take for this. I actually didn't like this origin that much. <laughs> really? Okay. There are other ones that I liked a lot better. I would put this in B tier. I, I would definitely put okay. this in B tier, but it was my least favorite. Okay. Of the setting. The reason that I say that is because there's just so much jawing. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the origin depends on you and your feelings for Jawain, which, like, I did like the twist that he was actually a blood mage. I think that he would be an interesting villain. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Karth from Knights of the Old, er, yeah, Knights of the Old Republic in a way, but overall, it's just like, I don't want to help you. <laughs> I do like the environment that it's set in. I do like all of that lore. I like that you feel like you're trapped. It's a very small area, and you just feel very confined. It is very atmospheric. I won't say that it's absolutely terrible. It was just my least favorite because of so much jawing. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. So that's sixth overall for you? Yes, yes. I would put that as sixth. Okay, okay. So next, we're moving on. I believe you also play this one second. The Human Noble. Yes, yes, that was my second one as well. And that starts out, and you get an introductory quest that's just an excuse to see everybody in the castle. You get to interact with both servants and nobles. I actually enjoyed being a real dick, as I believe the middle child in the Kuslin family you're not the heir apparent, but you're a pretty high-ranking noble, so almost everybody you're dealing with is a subordinate to you. So 
I choose to just be as big of a dick as I possibly could to the various servants and even to the various lesser nobles that were around the house. It's interesting that you say that because I was actually thinking about this when I was playing this and as the mage, I found that it was very easy to be a dick. But as the human noble, I was like, it's very easy to be nice to all of these people. (laughs) Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. And you do get a range of options. Mm. I mean, like, you can be a bad person in every origin or a good person, but, like, it's just... The reason I noted here is just because, like, you are obviously in a position of power above most everybody else. So... And I just like the way it's written that, like, you can basically act like a noble who's completely full of him or herself. Yes. Then there's a quest where you go and find your dog who's next to the larder and you do the most basic of quests, which is kill a bunch of giant rats. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that. This is the only one that has that feels very basic RPG and that you first just kill a bunch of rats and your party member is your dog. I think they even hang a lantern on that when they say, isn't this how all bad adventures start? Yeah. <laughs> I appreciated that. You got a sense of like how elves are in the society since the only elves you see are servants and they're being berated by the lady who runs the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And in talking around, like you get some history of your family, the Kuslins. You get to talk to the, the priestess. There's an older man who also knows the history of both Ferelden and your family. You get to meet your brother and his family. Some other nobles are hanging out with your mother, and you actually get an opportunity to hit on one of their servants there. Apparently, you can actually bed them if you want to. I was being too much of a jerk for that to come up. but. And you also get to meet Arl Howe, who's your nemesis for the future, and he is a important secondary character in the overall story. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I played this game as a very nice person. I did hit on the servant because that's the way that I be. <laughs> but like, I really liked this one and the way that it just played out. I liked this. This is another smaller area. I liked meeting your family. I feel like a lot of them were pretty well established. I liked hanging out with the mom and the dog. Obviously, the biggest turning point for this is that, like you said, you get to meet Arl Howell in the night when his men come and attack the castle. So what happens is your dog starts barking and you say, what's going on? And then people enter your room and you start fighting throughout the castle. What's fun about this is that you kind of go through the castle and meet the servants as well as your mother. And what I did was I was like, mom, can you fight? And she was like, hell yeah, I can fight. And she kind of took up a mace and I liked the feeling of going through the castle with my mom and my dog and the servants kind of taking things back. That was a cool feeling to me. Yeah, you get to fight with your mother through the castle trying to discover who's alive, who's dead. You find your brother's family has been killed. Mm. This is probably the shortest origin. Yes. Like after the mage, which was the longest origin, this is, I think, the shortest origin and definitely the least combat. Yes. But the ending sequence is obviously a long fight to a greater or lesser degree, but fairly short origin. But like it sets up the stake of like letting you know all these people and then you're running through the castle when a lot of them have been killed. Mm -hmm. And then you find your father and 
basically your father and your mother pledge to protect your back while you escape and you vow revenge. And also your brother is out there somewhere. He's already left for Ostrogar mm-hmm. and uh, you vow to join the Grey Wardens and get your revenge. Yes, yes. And as we're saying, I personally really like this origin. I agree. And I will say, as somebody who's more aware of the higher story, it slots extremely well into the main story, like maybe even better than anything else. Because Hal is a, he's an important secondary villain in the story. And it makes it very personal since a large part of the game is basically deciding the future king of Ferelden. And if you're a noble, you can directly interact with that. Like, you can potentially have your say in that. Mm -hmm. It gives you stakes immediately. It gives you a reason for revenge. It gives you motivation. It slots well into the main story. Really, really enjoyed it. Yes, yes, I agree. That is a rank A and second overall for me, actually. Yes, I... Somewhat close. Sorry, I'll let you keep going. I did consider it in the end. I just liked the motivation of the story. I liked everything of the way it slotted in. I liked the way you can act as a no one. I'm sure that affects things later. It's worth noting that as soon as you leave with Duncan for Ostrogar, you immediately talk to the king. And I'm not sure how much of those conversations you did, but in this case, you can immediately inform King Kalen that, like, oh, the house betrayed me. And he's like, you know, what? Mm-hmm. What happened? Like, it's like, we'll definitely get to the bottom of this. Yes, yes. I really like that about this origin as well. In other origins, I didn't see those kind of options as much, but this origin definitely had that, yo, this thing happened in the beginning, and this is not a done story for me yet. And King Kalen's like, yeah, no, that's not a done story for me either. Yeah. So that was very cool. I would also put this in A rank. I would actually bump this up for in my list, though, to be my favorite origin. Like I said, I really liked fighting alongside the subjects and your mother. Mm-hmm. It it definitely has this high fantasy feeling of, like, this is the beginning of the quest of a knight who saved the world or whatever. Sure. I also like the scene where your father and your mother are in the pantry dying together. It's very grim, but very cool. Now, knowing that it comes up a lot later, it definitely feels like this one has a lot of stakes throughout the story later on. It does a good job of setting the stakes and also like setting the idea of you are not necessarily the last of your family, but like you have the potential to be the last of your family if things go wrong with your brother. I really liked this one. This was my favorite, personally. And you said this is uh, number one overall for you? Yes, yes. I would put this as number one. Okay. That is certainly very respectable. Like I said, I feel like they handled this extremely well. And yeah, it slots into the main story quite well. So what was the third origin that you played? Yes, the third origin I played was the Dalish Elf. Okay. The Dalish Elves are elves that live... In the forest, they are uh, disconnected from human society. From what I understand from the story, elves were previously slaves to humans, so they were once a slave race, and the Dalish elves are elves that have returned to nature and are doing their best not to interact with people. The origin starts, interestingly enough, with a group of humans showing up in the Dalish elf forest 
and being like, hey, we just found this cave. We're not doing anything wrong at all. But you and your hunting partner, Tamlin, are like, uh, no, don't be here. I actually made the choice to kill one of them because I feel like this is another one that has a very easy to follow character of a bitter person who uh, is not enthused with the world around them. Definitely, definitely. As I noted, it's easy to establish whether you're a jerk or not with yes. these humans. You can decide to kill one, kill all of them, or let them go, depending on your personality. I did play kind of a jerk, but it's worth noting I let the humans go just because of the equation of, I'll bet this will cause more trouble if I kill any of them. <laughs> I was just like, just go and don't tell anyone about us. But I was a jerk about it. I was a kind jerk in that I Tamlin wanted to kill all of them. And I was like, no, let's send them with a message. And he was like, well, what kind of message? And I was like, kill one of them. <laughs> so I did kill one of them, and it did end up biting me a little bit later. But the main quest of this game, this origin, sorry, is um, investigating the ruins that the humans were telling you about. And that is a whole adventure in itself in that it is a human constructed ruin filled with a whole bunch of elf artifacts so at first the ruin is fairly empty other than a few giant spiders until you get to the centerpiece of the ruins which is a giant mirror that ends up calling to tamlin who goes and does the terrible great the really stupid thing of touching the mirror which ends up putting you in a I'm going to say it's a dark magical coma. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's about as well as it's explained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You end up waking up back at the village with information that you have been saved by Duncan. And the higher up elf says, go back, investigate that. Try to find Tamlin if you can. So you go back to that area. And this time when you go through, there are a bunch of darkspawn who are essentially the demons of this world. So that is fighting through the dungeon again. Once you get to the end point where the mirror was, you find Duncan again, who is standing there and explains the whole situation to you, saying that, yep, this was a mirror used to communicate. But once they get old, they start going on the fritz. And that's what happened to Tamlin. And now he's probably dead somewhere. And I kept pushing Duncan. I was like, I want to save him. And he's like, there's no way to save him. Stop being a baby. <laughs> If I can add, when you go out the second time, you're sent out with Meryl. Yes, yes. She is the first to the Elder, who is a magician. Meryl is also a magician in the Elvish sense, so they're not part of the circle of Magi. And it's worth noting that Meryl reappears in Dragon Age 2 as a full party member. Really, now? Yeah, she is only in Dragon Age Origins for this. And it's worth noting that she comes across as a bossy know-it-all in both games. <laughs> and I really don't like her on a personal level. I had a very antagonistic relationship with her in Dragon Age 2. I have not played Dragon Age 2, so that is very interesting to me. I was really nice to Meryl when I was playing it. The way that I played it was that I was nice to my inner circle, but kind of a jerk to outsiders. That's fair. I could definitely see a... Dalish Elf taking that perspective. After you talk to Duncan about the mirror, then he kind of talks to the Elf Elder and says, I want this person in my campaign. 
to fight the Darkspawn. And the reason that he wants you is because you are cursed with dark magic, and the only way that you can not be cursed is if you go with him, and that'll cure you. David, how did you respond to that? I was like, this is total crap. I completely objected to this, and this is the only origin where I got conscripted against my will. That's the same thing that happened to me. Like, And part of it for me was that like there were a lot of options for this is the place that I grew up. This is my home. These are my people. One thing that I actually really liked throughout both of the Elf Origins is this very realistic portrayal of a lower-class former slave society. In both of them, elves are like not seen in this traditional high fantasy, intelligent sense. They are a former slave race. They don't have their culture. And the way that I was playing it was that I don't want to lose that culture. I don't want to like be taken away. But then Duncan was like, well, too bad. And the elder was like, yeah, too bad. It actually got to the point where I think Duncan said, stop being a child about this. It was either Duncan or the elder. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> so yeah, that also happened to me. This was the only one where I was conscripted against my will. My overall reaction to this origin this is by far my least favorite origin. Mm-hmm. It's driven by a magical plot device, and there is no real interesting drama or motivation. It's worth noting that it doesn't even slot well into the main story. You later on encounter a Dalish clan mm-hmm. as part of the main story, but it's a different Dalish clan. Okay. You don't even interact with this Dalish clan again. Yeah, I was wondering because like a lot of these other... Well, at least most of the other origins have like something that like kind of teases a hook to the future. And when I was playing this one, I was like, I guess maybe the hook is finding Tamlin, but Duncan said nope. he was pretty dead. So you find out his fate, but you don't encounter Tamlin. There's really nothing. Yeah, that that is unfortunate. That is unfortunate. I know some people like this. I feel like people like the idea of being a Dalish elf, but mm-hmm. I just didn't like this origin. And interacting with Meryl again, which was a surprise, I was like, oh, right, she's in this game. I had forgotten. I was just like, man, and I still don't like her. God. Bad taste in the mouth. Yeah, she just, she acts like she knows everything. And it's worth noting, like, that really leans into her character for Dragon Age 2, but, like, she still has that kind of attitude mm-hmm. that she's in charge of everything and that she knows everything. And so, yeah, that's my least favorite. It's a C tier, sixth overall. I wouldn't put it in. Actually, I didn't hate it personally. I would put it in C tier because it is very short. You are going through the same dungeon twice. Um, and it's yeah, not a very that's the other thing. Yeah, and and it's not a very interesting dungeon. If it were the mage origin where you got to go through the tower and fight a whole bunch of guards and do a little bit of puzzling, I could maybe see it. But it's a short dungeon, so I would put it in C tier overall in my ranking. I put it as my fourth. I don't hate it, but it doesn't clear the top. Next for me that I wrote down was commoner dwarf. Okay. So you start off, it's described as commoner dwarf, but you are actually a castless dwarf. Dwarven society is highly caste-based. You are born into a caste, and when you're castless, you are branded, and you basically are the dregs of society. Mm -hmm. And 
the background goes to great lengths to emphasize this right from the start. Your family, you don't have a father, you have a drunk mother who hurls insults at you, and there's a sister who you're basically trying to marry up in dwarf society to escape the squalor of Dust Town. It's also worth noting this is the only origin that when I went through and replayed, it was just for my own curiosity, I played as a female in most of the other origins. But for this, I played as a male because it was just my concept of this character. I was like, I'm imagining a male dwarf in this role. But I did play as a female, and it's a weird situation. It's not, <laughs> it's not bad, it's just a little weird. Yeah, it feels like an origin for a male character. I don't know. Like, you can, of course, like, do whatever you want to. Right, right. It's also clear, like, when you're wandering around for your first quest, you get to see what it's like to be the lowest rung on the dwarven social ladder. Like, everybody looks down on you. Soldiers, merchants, even the servants basically act like you're trash. They're like, no, we're in the servant class. We have nobility in serving. Like, you're nothing. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a bad time to be castless in this world as a dwarf. Yeah. One of my favorite, and by favorites, I mean, uh, it was very depressing lines uh, throughout this origin, was you're walking past a mother and she says, can you spare some coin for some medicine for my son? The doctor says he won't wake up if he doesn't get any, and I'm like, oh, so it's that bad. <laughs> I remember there was this one random merchant who, like, I, for my character, there was an option where I could just completely tell him off. Mm -hmm. And your companion was just like, you know, uh, I think what my friend meant to say. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually encountered that as well. He was like, no, you can't go here. And I was like, do you want to bet? And he was like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> because... You basically can't make trouble for anybody because, again, you are in the lowest caste of dwarven society and you're barely allowed to live. So you can't make trouble with anybody who actually has a caste. Right. But anyways, your first task, since you are a thug for a local crime lord, is to find this underling called Psychus uh, and whom your boss thinks has been cheating him. And you have to find him and everything points to the tavern. So you go there and you have a few options for how to deal with him. How did you choose to deal with this guy? So I was doing my best not to threaten him. Like I was doing my best to be like, hey, we know that things aren't going great, but we don't have to tell. But somewhere down the line, I picked the wrong option and I ended up killing him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I ended up killing him as well, just because it was mainly actually out of fear. I was thinking from my character's perspective, I was just like, I don't feel like I can lie about this. Mm -hmm. Like, my boss is going to know if I take a bribe. There's too many witnesses here, so I just killed him. And when I came back to the crime boss, Barant, I believe I handed him back one of the nuggets because I was honestly kind of a coward i was afraid of him i was just like this guy has all the power mm -hmm. like what can i do i'm in such a bad position i did keep one of the nuggets for myself since i figured and eh, this is a criminal enterprise like i'm sure some of the graph it has to be inspected right like you getting your own piece you have to take it sometimes mm -hmm. yeah i hid it from him but then he was like 
no, search them down. And his yeah. uh, co-worker, or subordinate rather, did. And when he found that, he was like, you idiot, did you think you could get away with this? And I was like, a little bit. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. Uh, you can also have some funny conversations with his second-in-command, who is very heavily implied to be his lover, and basically saying things to her like, oh, you must have earned your position on your back. And again, your companion is like, you know, oh, what he meant to say is good day to you. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> I did like how we stepped in a couple of times to prevent you from possibly getting you both killed. But uh, if you put your foot in your mouth, which I chose to do whenever I possibly could. Absolutely. I really did love the partner character in this one. He was tons of fun. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, after that... Your next task is to fix a fight in the Provings, which due to comedic happenstance, you end up in the Provings yourself because the person who you're hoping to fix the fight for, you come in and he's completely drunk. And there's no choice you have to take on his position in the Provings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, like what you do to your opponent who you were supposed to drug his water, like what did you do to that? Did you drug the water? Did you have your assistant drug the water? How did you deal with this? I told my assistant to do it, but I goofed around a bit too much, so he was like, ah, I couldn't do it. So that was a bit of a bummer, but I really <laughs> loved this side quest. This was really fun. Yeah, I just love the idea of, hey, yeah, totally, no, we can fix this by you just putting on his armor, and <laughs> it worked a little bit, and it's really funny that it worked. Yeah, it works, and you fight your way through the provings, but then the drunken guy that you replace, he barges onto the Coliseum, and you reveal yourself, and you're not him, and mm. there's a whole kerfuffle, but then you wind up in a cell, but it's not even a government cell, it's a cell owned by the criminal Barant, your crime boss. And there's actually a few ways to get the key. Like, you can apparently convince the guard to come over. You can get materials for your assistant who can pick the lock. But yeah, you're clearly in a bad way here. You're being held by your former boss, and he's obviously going to torture you to death. But you escape beforehand. I think I convinced the guard to come close, and I nicked his key. Yeah, that's what I did. I tried to convince him that he was dying at first, but then he didn't fall for it, so I just stole his key. <laughs> and you get to fight a bunch of other dwarves on the way out, including Barant himself, and it's a mildly challenging fight since he is a higher-level enemy. But once you leave, the Proving Master and a bunch of guards and Duncan are right outside. Mm-hmm. And they try to arrest you for impersonating a Proving's combatant, since as a castless, you're not allowed to be there. This is very much against the structured caste society of the dwarves. But of course, Duncan is there, and he intervenes to recruit you on behalf of the Grey Wardens. Yeah, and that one I was like, sign me up, please save me. Yeah, you get to talk to your sister, but she's apparently found a noble, so she's going to be okay. Your assistant is like, you know, eh, whatever, I'll be fine. You just do you. And at that, I was like, yeah, like, we're leaving today. I can't wait. This is another case where it's like, you know, I can't imagine anything better than leaving this right now. Yeah. Along with the fact that, like, whatever my crappy life is. I thought this origin had a bit of a different tone than the rest of the origins. It definitely had a slight comedic undertone for parts of it, I thought. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like comedic misadventures. I will say that like most of the things it sets up are resolved by the end. So it doesn't really give like, there's not much to come back to later. And mm -hmm. it also doesn't give the greatest motivation to join the wardens other than you just don't want to be killed. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that like, and this is another one that didn't do too great in like hooking you into, Oh, there's a future to this story. I picked dialogue options that were like, I want to be the new Lord of the slums. And your partner was like, <laughs> no, don't do that. And then Duncan's like, yeah, come with me. And so that story is kind of something that I guess will just never happen. I think that that and the um, Dalish elf both do that poorly in that like they don't tease what's coming. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was entertaining enough for what it was, but yeah, mm -hmm. it doesn't slot as well into the main story and doesn't give me as good a motivation. So that is B rank and fifth overall, in my opinion. Yeah, for me, I think I would put it in B rank. I have that as fifth. Or no, I apologize. I have that as third. Third rank. Okay. So what origin would you like to cover next? We only have two left. Yes. I would like to go over the city elf origin. Okay. Go right ahead. Perfect. So, as I mentioned in the other, uh, in the Dalish Elf, the elves are a former slave race. And so, this is an elf who is rather than living in the woods with the Dalish, they are a city elf. So, I, is it that they were, that they're just slaves who didn't migrate back to the woods then? Is that what they are? Yes, these are elves that continue to exist in human society but they essentially exist as second-class citizens okay. and the elves are definitely in the world of ferelden they are the insert whatever second-class citizens your ethnic group has been treated as here yeah they are a stand-in for whatever that might be yes yes so the origin starts with it is your wedding day, which I immediately rejected every time I could. I was like, <laughs> I don't this. When I met my spouse, I was like, I don't want to be with you. <laughs> the cousin was like, but your spouse is nice. And I was like, I don't want to marry him. <laughs> I noted that like you start off like some sort of anime being woken up by your cousin and you're getting married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very anime-esque in that. And then it's just like, what? Oh, it's like, no, but because this is a, a crap sack world, very quickly, everything goes bad. And that um, a noble shows up, a local lord. I believe his name is Vaughn. Yes. And he. The son of, yes, his name is Vaughn. He's the son of Arl Vaughn. Yes, yes. And he is very abusive to the city elves. Um, so it's it's a very rich kid uh, visiting the slums kind of situation. He knocks around a bunch of elves, and um, you can tell him to buzz off, but what'll happen is that one of your cohorts uh, slaps him over the head with a jar, and then you guys, like, get out of there, like, this is bad. We know that this could end us permanently. And then you see Duncan hanging out, and you're kind of like, uh, this also makes us uncomfortable because that's another human. And humans are mean to us. 
but then you talk to him a little bit and he like kind of doesn't really explain why he's there, but he's happy that you're having a wedding. So then you go to the wedding and then Vaughn shows up again and abducts you after making fun of you and beating you and knocking you out. I, yeah, it, nope. you can go ahead. It's worth noting. This is the only origin that has a differentiation depending on gender. If you are a female, then you are knocked out and taken to the castle. If you were a male, you were knocked out and you have to go in to rescue the females. So there was actually a very slight story difference there, although a large part of the content does not differ. But I just wanted to note that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I played as a female, so I was knocked out and had to um, escape. And then after that, you're going through the castle, killing a bunch of people. I, I really like the official art for this origin it has a elf in a bridal gown with blood all over it it's very nice (laughs) very evocative of how this day has been ruined and it's worth noting that i like that there's this elf named nessa who's palling about before your wedding and she needs some help and that just feels like a case of like if you want to be a good person you can just give some money to her to help her family out Mm. and There wasn't a ton of reward for it, but it's there. And I liked how the elvish alienage, like all all the tertiary characters there are set up. Like there's one extremely bitter woman. There's a few kids playing about and that you can interact with. I really like that early part. But yeah, once you're in the castle, I feel like that is actually maybe the most challenging part of any origin. Like you fighting through the castle to get to the females, which is perhaps appropriate given how much the odds are stacked against you yes absolutely i thought that this and no no actually no this and um the previous origin that we talked about with the castless dwarves i thought that these had some of the more intricate and difficult fights throughout the entire um origin sets mostly because you are underprepared you are mostly unarmed you do have a dagger i believe as as the city elf And it's just a long corridor of fighting a bunch of guys with shields and swords. And you definitely feel outmatched, so that's very good. The uh, origin ends with you... The way that I did it is that I went into Vaughn's room, and I saw that he was beaten up on a elf, and he was like, if you kill me, this is going to cause problems for everyone. I can give you 40 sovereigns, and we can make this go away. And I said, all right, let's do it. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, give me the money and I'll go. How did you solve that problem? Yeah, so you confront Vaughn in his room and he's beating up your cousin, actually. Oh, okay. She's prone and she's the one who had smashed him with a pot earlier. Okay. But you confront him. He sees that you have obviously cut down a lot of his guards to get here. So he doesn't really want to deal with you. So... He offers you 40 gold, which to put in context for those who don't know, in in in-game terms, that is a lot of money. There are bronzes and silvers and golds, and golds are the most. And 40 gold, particularly at this point in time in the game, is an unfathomable amount of money to have. So he is giving you a not trivial amount of money to leave. And he tells you to leave the city and not speak of his actions if you do that. I was willing to do that to leave in peace, but I asked about the women, and he said 
they would stay with him. And to me, that was unconscionable. And he basically called me a stupid elf. But then I killed him. So, you know, it's all even. I let him live. And I was just like, if you give me the money, I will never say a word of this. Wow. I compromised my morals super hard. (laughs) (laughs) Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. I felt a little bad about it. And my cousin was like, don't you feel bad? And I was like, yeah, but this is money, man. Yeah. Of course, it does not matter because as soon as you leave, guards will come and say, these two are wanted by the Earl because they have been screwing stuff up. They've been doing bad stuff. And that's when Duncan comes and says, well, I think that this person could be a hero. And once again, this is another thing that's like, heck yeah, save me, take me out of this. This is a bad situation. Yeah, yeah, totally. When I returned to the aliens, the City Watch was there. I took complete responsibility, but before I'm arrested, obviously, for something that would be a death sentence, Duncan steps in, invokes the right of conscription. And the guards are like, uh, okay, well, guess there's nothing we can do. Maybe. And turns you over there. You get to say goodbye to your friends and family. I remember apologizing to my betrothed, Nasaria about basically leaving her before we get married. And she sweetly says, I had nothing to apologize for, given everything I did and the profession I was choosing to go in. And that was a very kind parting word that she had for me. So anyways, City Elf, to me... This is the best origin. I love just coming from nothing. You can either choose to be good or bitter about things. There's a lot of good choices. I feel like the choice that Vaughn offers you, I feel like that's the best choice of any of the origins just because it's it's really something material. Like as we noted, like just a unfathomable amount of money, like at that point in the game being given to you. Since like at the start of the origin, you were being given gifts from various people in the alienage, and it's things like a few copper. So that does a good job of putting in a frame of reference of how little money you have. Mm-hmm. And I will say it slots fairly well into the story later when you return to the alienage, particularly for the successor to the Earl of Denerim, who is actually Lord Howe. And there's implication for the elves there. And as I noted, it's the only origin to differ content based upon gender. Yes. I also really like this one. I put this as my number two. I also quite like this. I like the feeling of... I think this illustrates best the um, poor relations between humans and elves. Because even with the Dalish, you know, it's more hinted at. This is a direct... Yeah, everything is bad. And I really like the choice... I feel like in some of these games, um, some of the games that Bioware makes, the bad choices can be just mustache-twirlingly evil. Yeah. And I don't feel like that came up with the choice given to you by Vaughn, in that, like, realistically, 40 gold pieces is, like you said, a non-insignificant amount of money. And with the feeling that everything is bad for me, it was like, I would just rather take the money and forget what's happened here there's nothing i can do about this if i try to do something it's gonna go worse for me so i feel like it was a very it was a bad choice that like i felt like it made sense to make instead of you know doing the good thing by killing him i feel like it made sense and i liked it that way 
And it's worth noting that when I played through the full game, I went through the City Elf Origin. I'm a little partial to it because of that, but I still think it is a extremely well-written origin. And it slotted well into the character I wanted to play, which was basically a beacon of hope despite all the crap that was going on in the world. Like, I wanted mm-hmm. to just be the best of everything, like, even though they had a hard scrabble beginning. But City Elf Origin, very good. Yes. And that leads us to the final origin, which is the Noble Dwarf Origin. Yes. You start out and you're able to immediately establish what your relationship is with Gorham, whether you treat him as just a lowly servant or whether you imply that you have a romantic relationship. I actually flirted with him a little bit, so that was kind of fun. How did you treat Gorham? I flirted with him super hard. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked that relationship as well. There was like one choice that I can't remember exactly what it was, but I said something like, oh, or we could spend the rest of the day together. And he was like, yeah, and then your brothers would come and beat me up. And I was like, yeah. Uh. I said that Gorm and I are besties and in love. (laughs) And I liked how, just via some simple choices they were able to establish that, I thought that was pretty well done. But you, Yeah, absolutely. You go out and you immediately get a sense of Dwarven politics. By contrast to the Dwarven castless, you were at the top of Dwarven society. You are second child of the king. And you get to see things like your brother's uh, Balin's relationship with Rika Brasta, his concubine. And she's the sister character from the Dwarf Commoners storyline, worth noting. Oh. She makes a brief appearance here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can talk to various nobles. Again, because you were at the top of Dwarven society, you can be a pretty big prick about things. And particularly in, you can speak indirectly through Gorm. Like, Gorm, who is this talking to me? <laughs> Was a relatively well-behaved person in this one. One of the things that I really liked about this origin is that there was the huge dinner, which I'm sure you're getting to, but I liked interacting with the common folk in that and like being like, but what can you do for me? (laughs) There's a lot of neat interactions out in the diamond district, which you can go out and visit. Yes. And you can resolve a couple of disputes. You can have some people killed if you want to. It's worth noting if you're male, you can sleep with a pair of noble hunters, which you can interact with anyway, even if you're female. But apparently, if you chose to bad them, then later on in the game, apparently one of them fathers a child for you. (laughs) And you have to decide whether to accept it into your family. Mm -hmm. That's a neat little detail that's there. We both played as female dwarves, so we didn't get that. But yes. And then you can also go to the provings, which you can watch or fight in them. And I certainly fought in the provings. I'm guessing you did, too. Yeah, yeah, because I like beating people up. (laughs) Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? And it's one of those things that you can basically win it in your own honor. Like, this tournament is happening for you. I'm like, you know, well, I'm going to win this. And I thought it was a nice inversion on things, and I like the way they framed it. That's like you winning it was actually pretty exceptional for a female dwarf. So, Yeah, I think this one had a very interesting thing as well, in that, like, I'm sure it was just to make fast travel to the area move a lot better but you in order to get to the proving grounds you have to talk to a dwarf and he's like oh your father said you're not allowed to go there without escort 
And it like, I'm not sure if it does that the same way for the male dwarves, but it felt to me very, very um, significant that like it was saying that. And in Goran comments, oh yeah, sorry, I didn't mention that. Your dad doesn't want you going there without an escort. Again, it like connects to this, oh, it's very significant that our, um, our daughter, female noble dwarf was able to win this fight. Definitely, definitely. And I like the political intrigue you get when you interact with a Lord Dace. He talks about how he wants to have better recognition for surfacer dwarves. Yes. Which also gives you some info about that subculture, which is significant since most of the dwarves you deal with in the main game are surfacer dwarves. I like how when you talk to him, you find out he doesn't actually care about this. I believe his wife has a cousin who's a surfacer dwarf. And you can talk to some other lady who's like, you shouldn't speak up for him. And you can basically make this decision to speak up for him or not. And I'm pretty sure that I humiliated him and he gave me credit for like playing the game well, since Dwarven Noble Society is extremely political and backstabby. Mm -hmm. I was like, hey, yeah, if you give me information about what's going on in the world's I will absolutely stand up for any cause that you want. So, like, in a way, I was like, yeah, sure. But mostly just how can it benefit me? (laughs) (laughs) In this one, I was actually a bit of a noble prick a little bit. And basically, you can choose between being clever or getting some money out of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I like the way this was framed. And it just gave some good insight while also giving some background on another group of dwarves that are in society. Anyways, after that, you encounter your younger brother, Balin, who says that your eldest brother, Trian, is plotting to kill you. And he says he's going to support you and... I remember that Gorm, if you ask him about it, he's like, you know, yeah, if Trium becomes king, it'll just be bad for everybody. It's mm-hmm. probably best to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I know that the way that I said it, and I didn't know that this would bite me later, is that I was like, fine, let's kill him now. How did you react? I was also like, yeah, I'm going to play the Game of Thrones here and <laughs> going to move out and kill him. So you head out to try and take him down, but when you confront him, it's revealed as a setup, and the mercenaries you were with lie to the king that you always meant to murder your brother, and you get thrown in jail. Yes. And this is where the origin ended for me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I actually, I, I was playing on PC, and I encountered a glitch where Gorim would walk up to the cell next to me and the quest would say, talk to Gorim, but you're in a cell and you can't get out of the cell. I looked for a bunch of troubleshooting options. I tried everything. Apparently some people got it to work by turning on and off V-Sync. That did not work for me. Uh, Someone said that by switching to first person, they were able to fix it. And even able to find a first person button. But um, unfortunately I was not able to finish this origin. Not not by conventional means, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when Gorham came up to me, he says that he's going to be exiled to the surface, and you're going to be sent to the Deep Roads, which is essentially a death sentence. Mm-hmm. He notes that Duncan is still in the Deep Roads, and that I should find him. And we parted with a kiss. It was very bittersweet. And from there, the things you mentioned, you missed, was 
some fights with giant spiders, a couple dark spawn. And when you encounter Duncan, he's pretty impressed that you managed to survive till this point, and he offers you to join the Grey Wardens, which is again like that's basically the only way to live. So right. and the only way to potentially seek revenge. So that seemed pretty appealing to me. I think this is the the better of the two dwarf origins, though it still suffers from the problem that it feels like uh, a side story to the main plot and doesn't slot in as neatly. Although it does bring some small changes to Orzammar, I also have it in B rank, which is the dwarf rank, as I noted. Both origins mm. were in B rank and fourth overall. What did you think of the dwarf noble origin? I, I have mixed feelings on it. Partially because I was glitched out of playing all of it. <laughs> the dungeon that you explore in this one, I didn't love that much. It felt very samey. The mercenaries that kind of came out of nowhere were just like, hey, do this thing for us. And it's like, no, who are you? And then they're just like, I don't care. I'm going to kill you. Um, so I didn't love that. I was, I did feel betrayed by my mercenary friends. I was like, yo, we shed blood together and this is how you treat me. I I was very bummed that my, that our, my father was like, I, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't believe you. But, um, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I, I liked the, um, castless dwarves a little bit better because, um, it was kind of silly. <laughs> <laughs> and I did laugh along the way as I was playing that, but this one, a lot of the politics to me were kind of like, this feels very arbitrary in some places. I did like screwing around with the guy and like, yeah, I'll help you if you help me as well. So I slotted this into my fifth overall. I would put only because I couldn't finish it into a C rank. It's a game from 2009, and there's no fix, so the dungeon wasn't that interesting. Uh, the characters were okay. I would have liked to see um, the brother who set you up. I would like to see him a little bit more, uh, but whether or not you do, I don't know that answer. <laughs> I believe that comes up if you return to Orzammar. Like I said, it slots a little bit better into the story since you do return to Orzammar eventually. Okay. But obviously not as much as the humans do. And that's kind of the bias about anybody who isn't a human or like a an elf who lives in the human world. Because that is honestly most of the game and most of the interactions you have is just with this human kingdom. Like the Orzammar is just on the periphery of the human kingdom of Ferelden, mm -hmm. where most of the game is. So it's is what it is but yeah so that is my rankings and i'll just be uh, i'll be going down mine from top to bottom just for the record top rank is city elf s rank next is human noble a rank second overall third overall magi a rank fourth overall b rank dwarf noble commoner dwarf with fifth, fifth overall also B ranked dwarf rank, and finally easily in last was Dalish Elf at C rank and six overall. And for me, I have the Human Noble as number one. I put that in A rank. Uh, after that, I have City Elf uh, number two, also A rank. 
Then I have Castless Dwarf, uh, number three. I put that in, I believe I put that in B rank. Yes. Um, after that, I have Dalish Elf, so number four. I put that in C rank. After that, I have Dwarf Noble Person, also C rank. And then lastly, I have the Magi, and I put that in B rank. In B rank or D rank? B rank, B rank. B as in okay. blasphemy. <laughs> Fair enough. So yeah, that is our take on the Origins. What did you think of the game in brief? It was very interesting because I know when we originally talked about it, I the way that my mind has set it up was like, yeah, this is going to be a lot like Legend or Trials of Mana, which it was not. This is a very dark, crap sack <laughs> world kind of going on. The controls are a little weird to get used to. But I, I enjoyed the story crafting. I, I enjoy it does a lot of things that you don't see very often. Like you don't see slaves being or elves being like a slave race. You don't see dwarves um stick well, you do see that was the thing, is that like with the um nobleman dwarf, you do see a lot of this high fantasy dwarves are this excellent race, but then of course there's always the bottom side, which you don't see a whole lot of. I, I liked the way that they played with the rules of the fantasy world. It was very creative, and I, I, I do think it's something that at some point I'll probably try to play a little bit more of. I want, I wish there were controls that agreed with me a little bit more, but it's definitely unique, and I definitely like, I like outside of the box thinking. Yeah, I remember when it initially came out, it only had mouse controls, mouse and mm -hmm. keyboard controls on the personal computer. And I remember that such was the era that some people argued that that was good and right, that that should be there and there shouldn't be controller controls. Now I know a game such as that, if it released nowadays, it would almost certainly have options for both. Yes. And it was actually part of the controversy since in Dragon Age 2, there was a lot of people who disliked a lot of small elements of it. But that game was designed more for controllers. It's worth... Like it was adapted, Dragon Age Origin was for consoles, so it of course like has controller support, but right. it still is not part of the PC version in a conventional sense. But I had actually thought that they had maybe reintegrated that in later, but uh, such was not the case. Yes, sadly. <laughs> but yes, I I love the lore and the backstory, and that's part of the reason why like it is. A, a game that I love dearly just because it sets up the world so well and you, you get so much flavor and texture from the world. And it is recognizable as a fantasy world, but it is also unique. And I think the combat, as you said, like it can be a little wonky. Like, honestly, it kind of holds the game back a little bit in the end since you do a lot of it. And I mm -hmm. think it's... It, after a certain point, it, it outlives its welcome, but the story and the choices you make in there and the and the characters you make are some of the best that Bioware has done. Yes, yes. Like, like I mentioned, I feel like a lot of Bioware games kind of fall into this trap of, oh, the evil option has to be this mustache-twirling children genocide <laughs> option. Um, and I think that there were some options like that for sure, but there were also some very well-written, this is not going to be an easy choice either way options, which I would, I would like to see more of. I think that's a good, I think that's a good way to write. Definitely. I feel like this was the game where they wanted to break out from having to use the dark side, light side options. So mm -hmm. instead 
you do make moral choices, but they're difficult and gray. And I think it even comes down to the name of the faction that you end up joining, the Grey Wardens, as it's kind of implied. Uh, part of the reason why they're named that is because they do what they must to drive back the Darkspawn, even if it's right. a somewhat dark option. And and certainly, and that is, of course, part of the main quest of what you're doing as a Grey Warden, but you can get, how you go about it is is completely up to you. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about this. And it is certainly a unique option among games giving you this much story from from different origins, like six different origins. Yeah, yeah. I always love that. And of course, like most people are only ever going to play one. So it's an incredible amount of work and perhaps not surprising that Bioware has never done this again. Yes. But... Anyway, that wraps our discussion on the the different origins of Dragon Age Origins. And thank you all for listening. Next week, we're going to be talking about experiences versus video games. What's the difference? Heck yeah. I'll be going into Virginia. I'll be talking about my recent experiences with that. And what was the name of the game that you will be playing? Paratopic. It is a uh, indie horror game. Yeah, no risk in uh, you not being able to complete that. Given, isn't that like an hour or so? I yes, know it's not absolutely. It is like, and if you if you're speed running it, you can do it in a half hour. <laughs> yeah. So, but we'll have thoughts on that. I want to give a nuanced discussion about what experiences are, what video games are, and talking about our thoughts and concerns and everything else so i i am also looking forward to that and we hope you all will join us but for now i'm going to say good night or good morning or whenever you're listening to this and hope to see you next time au revoir